Here we are again in the nonprofit <laughs> podcast studio. Uh, I was just here 12 hours ago, it feels like. <laughs> uh, and, and today, um, I'm going to talk with someone who I met in person for the first time last night, but we have known of each other for, I'm going to say, 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, Daryl, introduce. Uh, <laughs> um, Introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, Daryl Bulky, uh, retired cop from California, from Southern California, because Southern and Northern are like two different countries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I was a L.A. San Diego area guy and okay. uh, was a cop out in the Inland Empire. Um, yeah, so I was a cop for a couple decades. Uh, got myself hurt real bad and medically retired, but during that period... Uh, I had uh, a very good mentor when I was uh, 18 years old and decided I want to be a policeman and uh, basically told me, you know, we'll talk. I'm like the polar opposite to Mark, so I don't like sleep in dirt. I'm kind of an <laughs> urban dude. And, uh, you know, com camping to me is like a condo in a ski resort okay it's, you I, know so yeah that's i, can, world, I yeah, can appreciate that yeah, and, and my, my my best friend knew that i wasn't probably cut out for the military and law enforcement urban law enforcement was a better fit yeah uh and so but i got great advice and one of his things was you know you take that badge and we'll open any door you want for training which it has i've trained with pretty much everybody um, and learned a lot and, you know, have a lot of interesting stuff. And then I got to apply it in the late 80s, early 90s crack wars of Southern California and got to work pre and post Rodney King and got to see a lot of different things. Oh my. And yeah, I was uh, kind of one of the first, uh, I worked uh, crime suppression, bicycle stuff. I was, uh, you know, Bike cop in the ghetto, barrio areas for uh, four years. I spent four years in a helicopter as my daily ride. Um, that, like, so, assigned to a SWAT team as a firearms instructor, like as almost a rookie cop because I was such a good shooter at the department. Not And I'm sure we'll talk about the influence on where that came from, but I knew I had no business doing that, so I went out to LAPD SWAT. It is pretty funny, actually, yeah. <laughs> when I, I mentioned to our mutual friend uh, Johnny <laughs> last night that we'd had dinner together and he goes ah D.B. Cooper that's a good motherfucker right there he runs an HK like I drink beer <laughs> yeah that's and, uh I was always for anybody who knows Johnny yeah knows he's a yeah. rather capable beer drinker <laughs> and you know that was uh the joke with me has always been uh when I was writing for uh surefire's combat tactics I think my my official title was the uh like um unconventional weapons editor or something like that which wasn't really it it was because i like weird guns like i really like running the steyr aug rifle uh hkp7 pistols okay. uh, all the hk stuff was my world p7's um, squeeze cocker the squeeze cocker mm -hmm. yeah so i wrote yeah. a, a like 21 page article on the squeeze cocker you know which is unheard of um which is an amazing 
Uh, yeah, if you're into engineering and stuff, and yeah. that's like the Germans gone wild on engineering on that gun. Um, so I was always into kind of the weirder things different than everybody else gun stuff so that, you know, and then did a bunch of knife stuff as well. Uh, oh, the, the Strider DB is named after me. I mean, I okay. kind of, which became the Marine Corps Salter's knife. Oh, no kidding. Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. another story all its own. So, you know, I've been around a lot of the guys, a lot of the industry, uh, worked for Aimpoint for quite a while as a pro staffer when I retired, um, done a bunch of executive and bodyguard work and high threat stuff and right up to low threat stuff, worked in the fashion industry doing loss prevention. And, you know, currently I'm working the, like the most low key, uh, job at a very small, you know, religious university just cause it's, but it's kind of different i'll always yeah. do a bunch of different stuff but yeah i teach a lot my big thing these days is revolvers we talked about that yesterday yeah is uh you know when he uh, age 50 changed me significantly <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah and that's when the wheel but you'd always always had some interest in revolvers i started with a revolver so okay. i carried a 45 colt revolver it was my first police gun which is I, huge I, and I, like with well, a, with a, it's huge size wise it, well it's a it's an know. in frame smith and wesson so and and i was looked at as like kind of a wuss because i carried a four inch because for me it was faster out of the holster and okay. just worked better um most of the males in the department would carry a six inch you know i mean it was basically identical to the you know dirty hairy gun but the cartridge I, I, is physically bigger than 44 mag yeah and then we would most of us so would it's 45, 45 long colt right is what yeah it would be. yeah if 45 colt is the correct name is, we just use okay. long colt to just to differentiate from 45 acp that okay. everybody yeah. ends up calling 45 colt and yeah isn't but the uh and then most of us were carrying triple speed loader cases I, that look like tomato paste cans all 18 you, rounds yeah yeah well that well that was big because you had 24 rounds instead Total. of 18 Woo! yeah a lot going on yeah but you know when i researched at the department uh every 45 colt shooting ended with one round every ah. single one of them was a one-round adventure my california <laughs> truck gun is actually a uh uh, Taylor Arms takedown lever action in 45 Colt. Right, which they're, you know, great, you know, that's, yeah. um, you know, it's funny. I get, I've get i been given sort of a FUD label lately in the tactical community, mostly by people who don't really know me. And uh, that's been because I kind of push uh, lever actions, pump shotguns and stuff for these poor people who live in banned states. And, you know, being from California, native California, spending most of my life in California until I punched out mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago to move to the Free Republic of Texas, which we're losing that, too. Um, you know, I, try to, I try to explain okay. to people, I go, you know, half the people in this country have sadly live in places where you really kind of can't have an AR-15 yeah, or a high-capacity anything Wait, so you better learn how to run this stuff normal capacity anything <laughs> yes yeah, or, or the way I it's mean, in, you mean the way it's supposed to be yeah, yeah. is what it comes down to so what, um i somebody was t talking about california or, or something like and it might have been uh bill rapier actually he was talking in in his you know he put stuff out and was like okay bring 
you know, this many pistol magazines, or if you live, and I think it's in the, what he calls a limited freedom state or something right, yeah. like that, <laughs> yeah. um, then you're going to have to bring six magazines because yeah, you know, the round counts for the class are this. And, you know, we will go through X number of magazines per iteration before, you know, going back to the bags to reload them. Yeah, and then, you know, I have a training company I co-own with Wayne Dobbs in Dallas called uh, Hardwire Tactical Shooting, and then I have a DB Shooting Adventure page on Facebook that we talk about old revolvers and okay. guns for normal earth people, as Pat, you know, yeah. our good good dear, dear departed friend Pat always used to say is uh, normal earth folks. So my direction the last five years or so has been really totally geared towards normal earth people. Yeah as opposed to the law enforcement tactical community only because there's so many good guys out there doing that stuff now and i find that there's so much poor stuff out there of advice being given to normal earth people yeah uh, in you know by people with no experience with things like uh violence and how that interacts with the criminal justice system <laughs> which you yes. will, you will be you will find yourself in uh using using force so yeah it's a it's a we, we live in interesting times yeah we do <laughs> i i, I want to for a little segue um i wanted to try and find a a uh a note that um, oh gosh, I, I received. Uh, <laughs> it, it's 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 actually kind of funny because it'll be it'll be a nice segue. Um, so it's, it's you know Instagram direct message from um, a, a fellow. It's like, hey Mark, I just listened to your podcast with Jack Carr as the guest. Uh, this was the first episode I have listened to, and I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. I first learned about you in the article uh, about the Thug 1911 pistol <laughs> from Mars Armament in a Surefire Combat Tactics magazine years ago. I still have that magazine and one day hope to have one of those pistols. I think it was. I think it is perfect. The episode was absolutely awesome. You mentioned Steve Morrison, Mad Dog Knives, and mm -hmm. Marcus Wynn. All very cool <laughs> things. Also, to top it off, you bring up Akita's, the best dog in the world. We lost mm -hmm. ours uh, a few years ago, but we'll have another one day. I'll keep listening to the episodes, etc. And I just wrote him back. I said, you know, serendipitously, <laughs> uh, the gentleman who wrote that article about the Thug Pistol for Surefire Combat Tactics, um, Daryl Bulky, is actually <laughs> going to be in the podcast studio this afternoon. <laughs> and then he responded, which I haven't... Uh, Oh, wait, actually, <laughs> he, uh, that is so cool that you're going to sit down with Daryl. I follow him on Facebook, his articles, uh, from back in the day, da, da, da. I had a Strider DB for a long <laughs> See, time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so a lot of people have had Strider DBs. That's, that's pretty yeah. funny that that was, you had just <laughs> mentioned that. that. Yeah. See, there you go. Um, so that's sort of how I first, uh, learned about you was, you know, when uh, a copy of the Surefire Combat Tactics magazine was, you know, appeared in the post. Well, I call. Uh, I think I talked to you beforehand. I think we did. We or corresponded, corresponded like, like yeah. in ancient email. Yes, uh, with AOL addresses and stuff. You know, so which I still have. <laughs> I was I was probably using Eudora or yeah, something. Or something. That's yeah, something at yeah, that yeah, at that point in the early two thousands. It's it it is tr it's true because there was in the article itself either the email that I sent to you right. was quoted or I, that email might, I don't think 
that was an email to Steve necessarily, but it might have been anyway. Or or he cc'd uh, in it or something. Yeah. You know, it, somehow it, we somehow we connected on what that was. I don't know if either if I sent the question about it to Steve to you or you direct and then back to us or how that worked. But, yeah. But somehow I got your quote on what you wanted, which was like all the same things I wanted. So it, you know, if you want to segue into the path of the 1911, that's always a good place to go in America. I mean, I mean you know, it's it's. <laughs> I, I live in a building that was built in Salt Lake City downtown in 1911. The perfect. And yeah, there's a reason for that. But see, it yeah, just, it's, and it was it's karma. It's, it's karma. karma. I can't yeah. not live in. A, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like my business partner in Texas is a fifth generation Texas. Texan. Okay. And uh, literally was one of those guys who was shooting on his, in his onesie on grandpappy's knee at granny's <laughs> pond and stuff. And see, my <laughs> granny didn't have a pond. She lived in West LA and we went to the grocery store for food and stuff like that. So okay. I was, again, complete urban creature. Really wasn't brought up with guns. We had them in the house. My dad had given up kind of hunting before I was of the age to start. Um, had a lot of, uh, police officers in the family on my mom's side. My dad's side's Jewish, and as my grandmother used to say, as good Jewish boys do not become policemen. Okay. So she used to tell all her friends that her grandson's in law, and she would leave the enforcement, enforcement. part <laughs> off the sentence. So, yeah, so I had kind of this weird growing up, but I got into firearms because um, I had an uncle who died who was a cop, and we inherited his gun, which was hidden in the gun cabinet, but no, not a 12-year-old exists on the planet who doesn't know where the hidden key is. Yeah. So I played with that Model 19 for, you know, years before I could ever shoot. But I had I was working at a bicycle shop in college, and the owner was a, a retired sheriff's deputy who was very into shooting. And uh, he took me out and got me turned on to Jeff Cooper. So, of course, the first firearm I owned was a Series 70 government model yeah. with all the right stuff done and a, and a Remington 870 shotgun. I look back you know, at where I've been in the gun world, and I could go back to those two things and still be happy, you know, in the reality of things. I mean, <laughs> I've heard a, co- a couple of quotes like that. It's true. Yeah. Okay. If it, there's nothing you can't get done with these two tools. Right. Um, and it came up actually fairly recently um, when a uh, uh, fellow who was at group for a while and he came to for a symposium and he drove down from uh, up north with a, in an FJ and we started talking about FJ cruisers <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and I told him, I was, yeah, I've been looking to get one, whatever. And he goes, well, I got a friend, you know, very good, you know, very mm-hmm. good on the ground kind of guy who says, there's nothing you can't get done with a Crown Vic and a Jeep Cherokee. There you go. Just, <laughs> okay, that's exactly you have, what we just said about have, the 1911. Well, you have it, no idea of my love for Crown Victorias either. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to be driving one around right now. No, but I, in it, the current climate of things, because my you know, goal at some point is, might, to, is to drop a Crown Victoria off at Shelby is my uh, goal. Oh, my. At, at some point is to just drop a Crown Vic at Shelby and go do your thing. <laughs> you know, okay. okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you, yeah, you had me at Shelby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, so my first gun was a series 70 government model. It wasn't a 22. My dad didn't take me out with whatever. I mean, I think I shot some 22s in the boy Scouts for the short time I was in the boy Scouts, um, which we could go down that road of how I got kicked out of the boy Scouts because of my dad. Yeah. <laughs> If we could, but you know, my dad t- went to town for Pioneer Chicken because uh-huh. the kids ruined the food at the campsite. And the scoutmaster yeah. was like, "That's not how you teach them how to." And my dad said, "No, it's how you teach them not to eat 
terrible food. Yeah. yeah so this is. Oh, so he didn't really is, like sleeping in the dirt either. No, we slept in or, the back but, of the seventy-two Crown or seventy-two uh, uh, Ford Country Squire station wagon with the wood paneling. Nice. Yeah, we ro- no, we rolled the sleeping bags out in there. I learned this from my dad. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we used to, when I was a kid, oh, yeah, I go, we went camping up in Mammoth, you know, and fished all the lakes up there and mm-hmm. Bridgeport and everything. And But we stayed in condos because in the summer you could rent those ski condos for, for nothing. nothing. Yeah. Why sleep in a tent? You know, we yeah. had we had a fire, too, but it was in a fireplace. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and, took and shower. it turned on with a light switch yeah, and, and some you know, gas. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> you know, camping was my brother and I were sleeping in the loft. You know, that was like, you know, yeah. in sleeping bags, but it was like, you know, a roof. So, That's, yeah, it's, it's it was a different growing up. But So it's definitely true that, you know, you might not have got on that well in the infantry no, or something anywhere yeah. no and i i uh i worked at a police equipment store going to college once i decided i wanted to be a cop okay um i got a job at a police equipment store and we supplied everybody i sold the sigs to seal team five before the navy bought them Th- oh, so those were my, my. customers you yeah. know i mean as a you know as an idiot college kid yeah. you know i'm advising all these guys from uh, all the cool places scott swat teams and yeah. naval special warfare and that type of stuff so and you know one of my but you're a voracious reader also voracious right. yeah yeah, yeah at the time i was reading 1200 words per minute at 100 percent comprehension i was a machine reader so if something <laughs> came out there was something to know about a 226 you knew it i knew it yeah and so these team guys and operator level people would come to me for yeah. advice because I was an encyclopedia with no operational experience, you know, but, and, you know, so I decided to go get that. I, I like I said, I had a, a very good mentor and friend from SEAL Team 5 who had been there forever. I mean, he did, did multi-tours in Vietnam with the teams. And, you know, he was like, hey, come out with us. You know, we're going to go a halo jump into the Pacific and swim five miles. And so I don't float. I don't float at all. I've got big, dense bones. I literally do not. As I could be over three, at the times of my life of over 300 pounds, and I don't float. I can lay on the bottom of the pool like a rock. And which people who look at me go, there's no way that dude doesn't so, float. So it was like jumping out of an airplane into an ocean. Yeah. Probably not. I can like, swim, but it's work for me. Okay. Like when they drown proof us in the police academy, yeah. it was me and the black bodybuilder sitting on the bottom of the pool together. Okay. You, you know, while everybody else is floating, we just yeah. kick up from the bottom and get some air and go back and sit on the bottom of the pool together. You know, it was like, where... yeah, he was my buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was my swim buddy. It was the two guys who don't float or the so swim buddies. Super lean. And yeah. he just went down to the, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, he was huge. And, you know, I mean, bodybuilder, powerlifting, just, he was just a rock of humanity of, he didn't have one ounce of fat on him. And, yeah. And me, I've, I've always had ounces of fat on me. And I, uh, yeah, just sitting on the bottom of the pool with my big, dense bones. So, all right. But, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting. But so I got a lot of experience with firearms because I was selling so many to all of these teams. We were SIGS West Coast Law Enforcement Distributor, okay. Ruger's West Coast Law Enforcement Distributor. So I was selling stuff and working with all these different guns. And, you know, so I really got into the double action, single action pistols because of the SIG. So the 1911 kind of went by the wayside because it just really in the late 80s was not a cop gun, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was like revolver transitioning to DASA guns, Berettas and SIGs mainly. So, and if you could have a, a, a nine millimeter platform with 15 plus one, either in the 226 or the Beretta, um, like why well, back, would, why would yeah, you Yeah, but even go, back e- back then they looked at you like you were 
something wrong with you that nine millimeter didn't work. So the agency okay. I ended up going with uh, carried SIG P220s. I sold them to the department SWAT team. It's how okay. I ended up at the agency. I was the first guy that recruited off a of college camp. So 220 is a single stack ish 45 caliber, but dub, d- yeah, it's like a, it's a t- it's a SIG 226 and 45 basically. Right. You know, right. so that was our. And then that when we transitioned off revolvers, we transitioned to that. We we're a very 45 agency, so it was okay. 45 Colt in the revolvers, 45 ACP in the autos, but they were double action, single action. But, you know, I took over training the SWAT team. I was 24 years old. They give me this position as, you know, firearms instructor assigned to SWAT. And I'm like, you know, because I could shoot better than anybody else. I had this deep equipment background. Um, I was shooting competitively. I was doing okay. all the right thing. And, I mean. It, it, so this would have been like. 1989. <laughs> so the era, yeah. like the steel challenge was. Well, I was, uh, yeah. And I wasn't shooting at that level of competition. It was a lot okay. of local stuff. Okay. And um, and PPCs was around? And I'm the or? dumbest guy in the world because I didn't shoot PPC because I thought it was I, slow. Yeah. And I had, <laughs> I had, at the place I used to work, I had a Governor's 20 shooter there. And then I had one at my own agency. We had a governor's 20 shooter and, and for me to not pick those guys brains if i could go back and change something learning how to press a trigger from a incre- a yeah. high level ppc shooter is the stupidest thing i ever didn't do in the training world yeah because i wanted to shoot fast so i was shooting a lot of the police multi-gun matches okay um and you know it's doing real well doing that and so I knew I had no business training a SWAT team just because I knew how to shoot well and I knew how the guns and the gear worked. And they were going into buildings and all of your experience was flat range. Well, you know, I was a cop too in a busy time. I mean, I understood probably more of that than even those guys did, but I just knew I didn't quite have the, what I knew SWAT's supposed to look like. So I pulled the, uh, I have friends in the business card, and I reached out to Ron McCarthy, who is an absolute legend. He's called the Godfather of SWAT. He was one of the original members of LAPD SWAT team. You know, okay. Uh, when they founded the team, he was the SLA shootout, the whole nine yards. I mean, Ron, anybody in police tactical world, if you don't know who Ron McCarthy is, fix that. Okay. So Ron- <laughs> I'll, I'll be fixing that. Yes. Ron, Ron got me hooked up with Larry Mudgett at LAPD SWAT. So this dumb kid shows up, 24 years old, got hooked up with a guy named Ralph Morton, another incredible instructor. And I spent the range week with Larry Mudgett, Ralph Morton, John Helms, and Scott Reitz. Learning. Scotty. Yes, learning from, well, see, and Scotty was running the gauge back then. And what's funny is I get out there and I can't pass their pistol qualification course. And I was like a really good shooter and could not pass the course because I was shooting a DASA 45. Their guys were all shooting 1911s. Okay. And the course was very accuracy-centric and very difficult compared to what most police quals were. As you would expect from a— Right. 
Now, uh, I was a very much a gauge guy, so me and Scotty got along well. Okay. Uh, and you know how, if you've trained with Scotty, you know how hard that is. Uh, <laughs> you know, to be a 24-year-old moron out there, Scotty didn't pick on me too hard because I could actually run the 870 okay. like a boss. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my first shooting was with an 870. I dropped a guy at 47 yards at night Ooh. with a beadside 870. So that's really my gun is I'm really a shotgun Wait, guy. 47 yards, so with a slug. <laughs> no. Oh. With garbage nine pellet double on. I hit him with... What kind of a one, choke did one, you have one, in that? Nothing. One pellet hit him. Whoa. I had put a uh, first shot on him at about seven yards, and uh, I think six pellets went through his left kneecap because he was kneeling. Uh, so his kneecap was up sort of above. And, you know, it was so dark. It, yeah. You, you could, I couldn't see sights, and I was looking for him. And completely missed the second shot, but they never even found a single round from that. And then the third shot I took on him, he was running to go carjack another car. And uh, he ran by a lit real estate sign. And I got just enough where I could see the bead planted it between the guy's shoulders, pressed the shot off, and one pellet hit him in the back of the thigh and dropped the guy at 47. But I mean, but like I said, the gauge is really my thing. Okay. So um, it's funny, there's a bead go uh, uh, you know well, when at, those old 870s upstairs right yeah now, well after know. that i got really into like i brought my own surefire four end light in i had hans vang do some of the original stuff hans built me barrels that i would put on my work guns okay see i learned a lot from that shooting of what kind of equipment i really yeah. needed versus what you just happen to pull out of the car but when i was in la i really got into the 1911 because i was watching those guys so i came back from uh, lapd hard a, I made my guys have to use their qualification course, which was horrible because the first thing they said was, well, we're not a full-time team. You know, those guys train all the time. We're a part-time team. We yeah. only train once a month. I go, yeah, but does the crook know that? You know, do the pro- well, does the problem yeah. know that you're not trained to that level? So and, I said— But I think the other thing right there is to ask them, like, do you not want to improve? Well, and that was the thing. I said, if we're not going to do this right— yeah. Then let's just call the sheriff's SWAT team, which at my agency was like invoking oh, yeah. some sort of satanic curse of, say, call the sheriffs to come handle yeah. it. Because it was a huge uh, sibling rivalry there. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> when I said, you know, we could just not do this and call the sheriff. Oh, no. You know, so and, you know, it, it, I, I put us on a program. That's that's like mage level manipulation. Yeah. So I put us on I a like program that. where like we're going to take kind of a year of learning how to do this. And then you will be held to the same standard that LAPD is. You know, but or we're LA, going to take LAP SWAT. SWAT. SWAT, SWAT yeah. Not the, yeah. And Within a year, they were able to do the court, and we figured out sort of how to shoot a DASA gun. Okay. Um, and there's a means, and we are truly in the golden age of it. I spend, I, I shoot nothing kind of these days, but like Langdon nineteen or Langdon Berettas, uh, both my wife and I, and we with guys like like Ernest Langdon out there and stuff. We we are in the golden age of building guns and knowing how to train and shoot them, which we didn't back then. Yeah. We were trying to shoot them like 1911s, and they're not. But I came back from uh, L.A., and I was hard on the 1911. Boy, I went out and got a Milt Sparks 1AT and a leather you know, belt and double yeah. mag pouch, which trying to wear that concealed in Southern California was ridiculous. Yeah. And you know, built my first really custom 1911, learned a lot from that. 
And, you know, I would, anytime I was assigned at one point to a, you know, kind of a, a proactive crime suppression patrol based thing, but I could kind of carry what I wanted. So I carried a 1911 because okay. it was an option, which always got me the number one stack in the door because, like, you know, weirdos got the cocked gun, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of got into that. And then, um, but then I kind of got out of it because it was always chasing these custom 1911s because kind of the stock ones didn't work right. Yeah. Or well, you were, or you had a taste of what that gun can be after having right. been. Right. And I had a great gun. I had right a hand. great gunsmith who did, um, you know, TJ's custom gun works was in our city. So TJ okay. built all my stuff, but I was having to build it to, uh, department specs, so triggers, and they had to be yeah. almost near stock. And TJ was also incredible on DASA guns. So he did like all of our range guys. He did all of our SIGs. I mean, our SIG 220s had, you know, rounded short triggers in them with great actions, but still would work for the armor's reviews when yeah. we got an officer involved shooting, that kind of stuff. So, you know, kind of years later, but I, I always had a love of the 1911, and I consider it, I was mentored by great guys who carried them. Whether, you know, my best friend who was 10 years older than me and, you know, gigantic secret squirrel been all over the world doing the Lord's work for Uncle Sam, uh, you know, Pat Rogers, you know, I had all these guys. You mentioned my, Givens last night. Also yeah, 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 Tom, you know, it, so there's all these guys that I looked up to and they were all, and, you know, in the whole D platoon cadre, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't get much 1911 harder than those guys, yeah. you know, and really following all the gun sight stuff. So I was always in love with a 1911, and I always considered it the finest close-quarter gunfighting pistol ever. And I had been reading Ken Hackathorn stuff and, like, Soldier of Fortune from when I was, like, 14 years old. You yeah. know, I have these old Soldier of Fortunes with Ken stuff in there. So, you know, I loved the 1911, but I, I was always in this dilemma working in— Law enforcement in a state with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is who we're dealing with on the federal level of lawsuits and stuff. Yeah. In a very litigious area. Yeah. Very restricted, very uh, controlled by, you know, not thinking like the rest of the world does. Mm -hmm. So I kind of figured out that. As a police officer, I was in the prisoner-taking business, not in the gunfighting business. So the 1911 yes. was always that weird dilemma. It's an incredible gunfighting pistol, maybe not the best prisoner-taking pistol. So I'm big on like double action, single action, because I get a thinking trigger when I need a thinking trigger and a shooting trigger when I need a shooting trigger. Okay, yeah. I love the HK LEM system to hand those out like candy to police officers because it's basically like a long travel, easy to work trigger that is shot well at assessment speed. It's hard to run them really fast, okay, but you can run them at what I call assessment speed, mm -hmm. which is like 0.25 to 30 splits, like where you can stop. Yeah. Because, okay. you know, everybody's all like, yeah, dude, bro, I shoot, you know, like 0.15 splits. I'm like, yeah, how fast can you stop? Yeah. That's because a... you're shooting faster than you can stop, which is causes a lot of problems when we try to apply that with, with the U.S. Constitution and civil and criminal penalties associated with that. Yes. 
So I like something that I can shoot well at what I call assessment thinking speed. I and really, <laughs> really like that concept. And like the, the, and the differentiation between, you know, the thinking trigger and the shooting trigger. trigger. Right. So where I kind of ran into uh, Steve is 2005, I'd gotten hurt real bad on the job. And about that time I was off. When I met Steve at SHOT Show, I was literally walking with a cane. I, I could barely walk. And he introduced himself. We had known each other for years on the thing. Okay. And I, he was always a 1911 guy, but I kind of had a 1911 guy. He, you know, in yeah. the few guns I had, I thought I had what I needed. So I really, you know. And I, at the time, I had transitioned. I have such horrendous arthritis in my hands. Um, for 10 years straight, I shot 50,000 rounds of 45. 10 years straight. Because my work partner and I would order enough ammo for everybody in the department to practice. So while they were in the parking lot drinking beer, every night we were shooting their ammo. Yeah. That's how budgets work. Yes. So I was shooting 50K of taxpayer-provided ammo, which I appreciated every year for 10 years, and destroyed it's, my hands. It's interesting because um, when I was shoot, there was a period uh, after I started shooting 9 by 23 um, that I was shooting either that or hot 38 super rounds. So, right. <laughs> and I developed really bad elbow tendonitis because of how sharp that, so the 124 grain going 1450, um, which is what you have to do to make major in right. the USPSA. Um, like if I shot enough to be able to run that gun, um, I, my elbows would, you know, A, they're it, already it, sensitive It's from kind climbing, of funny. So I can tell people, I go, so... Dudes with elbow problems with this tend to be uh, fairly modern or ISO shooters. Yeah, okay. I'm very much kind of a more Weaver-based okay. guy, and we get it in our hands because you're gripping the pistol differently or you're using different body mechanics, so my hands are horrendous. So I, I started using a Glock 17 as a training gun. Okay. Because it just was a lot less recoil. Well, yeah. then, you know, you're shooting 50,000 rounds through a Glock every year, and I thought, well, why am I just not carrying this thing? You know, up at Scotty Reitz's place all the time, I'm shooting all these classes. I had stopped shooting competitively, and really, after my my second shooting, I, I just stopped shooting competitively and went, but I didn't stop shooting competitively. I started shooting competitively at training classes that were geared okay. yeah. towards that. So I realized I was getting some bad habits from the competition world that I didn't want. You, you mean but when, I didn't when use that it as, sound that <laughs> yeah. goes off, you just <laughs> put two and everybody in the yeah. room? <laughs> yeah, but I didn't I didn't use it as an excuse to shop shooting. I actually was shooting more, but in very high-end tactical training classes. Yeah. So in, in a way that was actually supporting your job right. and that also wouldn't come back on you. I always tell people, I think we should always be shooting competitively, whether you're on the range with a shooting partner, you're comparing whose group is better. You, you, you need to have skin in the game every time you're on the range. Yes. I gave up sport shooting. Okay. It, yeah. it, 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 you, again, it, people always dog me that, well, you're against competition shooting. No, I'm not. It should always be a competition, and you should be doing some sport shooting because you're shooting other people's problems, and you get to see what exceptional technical shooters look like. Yeah. I shoot as a, it, to me, it's a use of force tool. Okay. Most people are looking at it as a shooting tool. 
so it, it, it's different. Shooting and yeah. use of force are two very different things that there's a huge distinction in. So with Steve, when we met up, um, you know, we were talking, and I knew he did a great 1911 work. And I said, you know, kind of really level 1911 again, you know, because, you know, I'm all jacked up. It looks like the department's going to let us carry 1911 as duty guns mm-hmm. when I come back to work, which never actually happened. But I was planning on it. And, you know, I said, you know, I just want like a 1911 that is as simple and sort of reliable and easy to work on as my clock, but like does 1911 things, like has an incredible trigger and the ergonomics are phenomenal. And he just looks at me and goes, oh, well, you need a thug. (laughs) You know, I'm like, "Uh, okay, what's a thug? And he goes, oh, it's a Twite hard use gun. And, you know, what's funny is I had heard of you. Okay. Because I had spent a lot of time down at uh, various places shooting with military special operations guys who would all tell me, you know, it was kind of funny. It was like, oh, dude, you need to read Twite's mountaineering book. And I'm like, or, you know, about climbing yeah. and stuff. And I'm like, okay, time out. Okay, so, like, I don't, I'm not into working out. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> or um, sleeping I'm, in the yeah, dirt. Yeah, yeah, sleeping in the dirt and or not even, an athlete. Even the white dirt. Yeah. It's colder and, than dirt. You know, and if <laughs> yeah. I'm really not on a bicycle and kind of taking a gondola up, I'm not really that interested in any of this stuff, you know. Yeah. And they go, no, no, no. It's not about the climbing. It's about the whole mental thing. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'll do that. And so I read your book. So I knew who you were because it's, there's some really great philosophical stuff in there. That it's, has nothing to do with climbing. It has to do with life. Yeah. So I was familiar with which, it. So it was like... So, uh, which is fine. So a bottle of Toki yesterday, <laughs> the, it was actually a copy of Extreme Alpinism that right. I, I signed for a guy. Um, and uh, I think... I can't... Um, Rich is his first name. But he, he uh, he's somewhere do, doing some kind of work at Stanford now. But I guess he, he, he ran Green Team for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, it amazed me that that book, like that, what I I didn't see that it was an overarching or universal philosophical lessons. To me, it was very specific to climbing when I wrote you know, it, wrote, yeah. that, wrote that book. <laughs> but then when I did start training military guys, and they, you know, that all started out as cold weather, high altitude stuff, um, and, and and they would, you know, like give you know hand out copies of the book, whatever, and then I'd get involved in these sort of email traffic or these conversations about like, this is exactly, you need to read about the mind, climbing parts, the more specific climbing parts of the book. It's not that interesting, but these first two chapters and this specifically the attitude and character chapter. And it just, and it kind of spread through that community in a way that blew my fucking mind. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, it's well, and that's the thing is I think what separates, uh, deep divers into this stuff the true professionals the true if you want to be the best at what you're doing okay you need to get out of your little pond and it was hard for me as a 24 year old you know strapping young policeman you know who thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread like for me to get out of my pond where i was the big fish as far as gun stuff yeah and go out to deep platoon and see what real guys looked like how they yeah. talked how they trained how they shot how they did comported themselves right you know. You, you know you just take your ego and you go flush it down the toilet because you can't do this 
unless you're willing to get your feelings hurt. And these are some of those, li- and you know, most people like don't learn that at 24. Yeah. You start learning that at like 44 where it's too late. Yes. And so stuff like being able to read a climbing book and understand to apply the principles into dealing with personal adversity mm-hmm. in your world. Uh, you know, another one that was like a life-changing book, Gates of Fire. Okay, yeah. If yeah. you can't appreciate Gates of Fire for like team training, you know, the, the, the brotherhood of working together, the realities of violence, of, you know, honor, integrity, you know, discipline, all of these things. You know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm never standing in a mountain pass stacking bodies all – and you don't want to talk about a workout. You know, stacking bodies all day with, uh, with, with you know, a sword and a spear. I mean, yeah. you know, that's brutal physical killing at a disturbing level. And, you know, you think about this guy, I think he killed, what, like, you know, 50,000 dudes in a couple of days, you know. That's a lot of physical work. So you sit there and go, uh, yeah, we're shooting little projectile weapons that don't require this, but you, you can apply these principles. And that's sort of the difference between, like, <laughs> I love, so my wife has been a fantastic aspect of my life the last couple of years that we've been together, um, is because her introducing her me getting her into the defensive shooting world where she was exceptionally good already on the hunting side, which I okay. didn't do. Now I, I am involved in that, and she's doing the, the defensive pistol. But her outlook, so she was working at one of the larger big box stores as a range officer and then working there on the gun counter. And she was, like, fascinated that guys would come in and want to buy a gun because it was in a movie. And you know, it, you know, so so for for you know, uh, yeah. listening to her go, you, you know, she goes, you know, she goes, these guys come in, they want to buy a gun because it was in a movie, and I'm like, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, and you look back Did and you, you go, sell them a Desert Eagle, eagle that yeah, said replica, like a, yeah, I mean, but it's like you sit there and you look back and go, you know, it kind of takes a woman's perspective on that of like. You know, isn't that the dumbest thing you've ever heard? And I go, dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know how many guns I bought because they were in a movie? You know, oops, oops, yeah. yeah. But you know, you know, thank God for shows like Hunter. Yeah. You know, back in the day, because that's why I have a P nine. Okay. You know, an HK P nine. I mean, Hunter always had the coolest guns. But how did you? How, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, when I was dressing, so out, was, out of colors, that, you know, <laughs> um, that guy. So. It was played by Fred Dreyer, yeah, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, Who was I, like a, I can't remember. Was he a tackle or defensive end for it, the and, LA yeah, Rams? Yeah, because well, we had we had season tickets on the fifty yard line my oh, entire youth. So I grew goodness. up with. Okay. We just drove by Merlin Olson Park. I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> I watched him play my entire yeah. youth. You know, and yeah. So Fred Dreyer was like one of my football heroes, and then you know that TV show was so. I mean, I, I, it's funny. You go back and you'll get these on DVD now or watch yeah. these old things. You go, God, that was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but back then you thought it was amazing, you know. <laughs> but, but so there were things like th- that's an interesting thing because you 
you might never have been exposed to a P7 any other way in the United States. Like it well, just wasn't. Yeah, no, it was. It was all the bad guys: Die Hard, yeah, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, you know, all true. the bad, all the bad guys so had the P7s. Pistols. Yeah, it's the German yeah. pistols. Yeah, I mean, you know, so you you know you got into these things because of it. But it's like you know, and then you look back and go, yeah, the reasoning behind buying a gun because some. Yeah. Character used it in a movie is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but we've all done it. There's so yeah. many things. Uh, one of my favorite Pat Rogers-isms, you know, it's like, well, we've all worshipped at the altar of speed. You know, and you kind of figure that out that, yeah, we've all done that. I sit there and I tell people, I go, God, if I could get the years back that I spent, like, trying to get from a .16 to a .15 split— if I could just get that back, yeah, because it didn't matter, no. <laughs> you know, of trying to get that much, of trying to get faster than my reaction speed. If I could have just put that into like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something, you know, would sure. have been a better choice, or just you know something, or but, PPC. But you got to do what you like. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, there is a. Um, it, it's an interesting thing because like, I think a lot of that that chasing speed, um, you know, you end up with. Uh, sort of. Oh, I'm chasing a zone fast splits, right? Rather, you know, when I should be chasing, you know, s- less fast credit card shots. Yeah. Well, so my you know, partner like, and I use B8 repair centers at okay. our, our school. Yeah. Um, and we we staple those up to silhouettes. Yeah. So part of I'm doing a presentation this weekend, and it's. You know, training habits of highly successful pistol fighters, and it's only because I've had access to some amazing guys who have talked to me, okay, who have been in numbers of shootings that we will never see again. So to take from a learner, because like now, if you're like a cop and you get into two or three shootings, they're gonna they're gonna ground you. You're done. Yeah, and you haven't even started to get like good at it yet. You know, right. so right. these are uh, I, I've been fortunate to have some amazing mentors in life who were exceptionally good at gunfighting which is a hard skill to become good at. You know, oh, the to, downside of not being good is... Yeah, in today's um, world, and you know, but one of the, the things they all have done when I look back is they all train on small targets, on big targets. Yeah. And so we kind of got into doing the B8 thing from Larry Vickers. But for me, what's funny is, and we talked a little, I uh, I turned 50 and went crazy on a lot of stuff because it was like a life-changing thing, like I'm on the backside. And where's my place in the tactical community? And I've decided my place is the historian because okay. I love to read, I love to research. And yeah. so I start really taking these deep dives into the history of where things came from. I have pictures from the 1920s of Charles Askins and the Border Patrol shooting with B8 stapled to silhouettes. And those were some gunfighting dudes. Those, I mean, back then, those were serious gunfighters. So it's one of these things. So we consider anything outside the black a miss with a pistol. Sure. Now, it's, it's, as my partner Wayne says, they all hit something. If you fire it, they all hit something. Yeah. So hitting somewhere in the silhouette or a body is great in that it's contained in your uh, opponent. Yes. And not endangering the public. So, like, one of the things I did at my agency. And is, you might get their attention. Yeah. And, well, it just means we, what we tell people is if you're outside that, that five and a half inch bull, mm-hmm. whether that bull's high up in the center chest or it's in the head, 
if you're outside of that five and a half inches, about the size, and you know, everybody likes to talk about, oh, acceptable target. I'm shooting the speed of the acceptable target. I go, well, you know, on human beings, the acceptable target's like the size of a grapefruit or a large orange. That's your acceptable target. Yeah. Now, you might hit the other things that's inside the body, but with a pistol, you're going to do it again. At this stage of the world right now, I want to be on the most minimal amount of rounds fired as humanly possible to end a problem because some of these things are controversial shootings, not because the guy got shot doing something that deserved lethal attention. It's all this, well, did you really have to shoot him seven, eight number of times? times, Right. I mean, there was a, um, after I I did a course with, uh, with Dane Burns, um, uh, and given Tom Givens and mm-hmm. Jim Higginbotham, right? It was like a five-day <laughs> yeah. range masters package. It was, yeah. it was fantastic. Um, and and I wrote an article about it that ended up was in SWAT magazine or something. You know, shortly thereafter. And one of the you know sort of the research things, and I was because I was going down a road about like unacceptable levels of training for law enforcement officers right. at the time. <laughs> and 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 I remember vaguely now but it's somewhere in the you know nypd 1400 rounds fired 1100 unaccounted for right you something know like that. and that's in like in a year or whatever but still it's like and and that would be the other thing of look if you're not if i'm not shooting into the orange or the credit card or the you know right then then where are those things mm-hmm. going because this person's not standing there allowing me to Right. You know, address them. They are moving. Right. You're in a dynamic. And, and, you know, so if you can't hit kind of like that five and a half inch bowl. Yeah. As Pat would say, you know, on a one dimensional paper target under, you know, uh, amazingly blue skies under and fluffy white clouds under no conditions. conditions. Yeah. Yeah. On a moving, dynamic, problem solving exercise in the middle of the night. It, yeah, it's going to be a lot more than that. And so you need to be crushing it in training when you can on small things so that you can kind of replicate that. You know what skills you need to train your brain to know what skills you need to employ to make that happen for real. Yeah. And what I tell a lot of guys is, you know, a lot of people find that they, when you get into one of these horrendous sort of interpersonal social interactions involving firearms yeah with a with a with a with a savage criminal okay you're all those lies you've been telling the mirror about how good you are your 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 subconscious is going to be screaming at you that you lied to yourself oh yeah so you need to quit lying to yourself when you're training about how good you are or how you don't need to train because, well, I have this you know, shiny badge or I have a golden Budweiser or whatever you happen to have that says I'm some level of... Of something. Something. Yeah. And uh, that, you, you know, you're not. You just got to go do put in the work. I mean, that happened in the climbing community. I mean, uh, th- these things it, are still, you know, th- those confrontations with self yeah. <laughs> are also self-correcting. It's, you know, it's, it, it, you know, sitting here with you is kind of funny because like, I am not, anybody will tell you I hate anything involving working out. I hate it. I, but you know what? I kind of hate shooting too, because it's work for me. It's not fun. I'm not going out and having, it, it's why I've sort of enjoyed with my wife. I started getting into like shooting uh clays okay i was just just about to say yeah and and like and like archery now i mean because like that stuff for me is fun because for me shooting hasn't been fun 
Is going to the gym and working out fun for you? Oh, hell no. No, it sucks. <laughs> you got to put in work. And for me, going to the range sucks because I'm very hard on myself and I'm trying to work. And it's just like going to the gym. I don't like doing that because yeah. it hurts if you're doing it right. Well, shooting should is sort of, well, defensive shooting is the same thing is it hurts if you're doing it right it sucks to go do to crush your ego to feel bad about yourself and it, and to necessarily like if and if and if you don't have someone to be hard on you about everything that's not in the black about like you know if one of the things I really appreciated with um, I did I've done four days of training with uh, with Ian Strimbeck from Rune Nation this this uh, summer and mm -hmm. And, you know, one of his theses, one of the things he always says is, like, hold yourself to a higher standard, man. Right. You know, let's let's put the, like, the speed may come later. Yeah. Um, but don't, and, and if you focus on that now, you're not going to understand these fundamentals that we are all here to learn. Yeah. And, but, it, but so if you don't have someone to hold you to that standard, you have to hold yourself to that standard. And that's what hurts. And, you know, like for me, you know, I'm blessed as, you know, I get to train with you know, Wayne Dobbs is kind of my, you know, business partner. And we go shoot as much as we can together. It used to be a lot more before we were both gainfully employed. But the Wayne is a much better shooter than I am. Okay. As far as a pure shooter, when we teach classes, I kind of throw my hands up on the marksmanship stuff because Wayne, when your business partner is one of the best guys on the planet at not only how to press a trigger, but how to teach people to press okay. a trigger, you kind of just walk away and let them do that. My thing has always been the handling aspects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, part of this thing of uh, I've been blessed because of my position I had at work was I have been firsthand investigated over 75 officer mall shootings. Then there's all the you know typical crook shootings we saw just in the nature of working in a violent area at a violent time. And so diagnosing those shootings, I came up with this thing that, you know, kind of Jeff Cooper was a genius at putting together the combat triad of, you know, mindset, marksmanship, and then you have kind of gun handling and tactics on these three legs of the of the triangle. And, you know, if any of those legs are out of balance, you're probably not going to do real well at this. So you need to put sort of the gun handling and tactics need to be on the same level as the marksmanship. And mindset you really can't teach. You have to kind of get that across differently. Okay. Um, it's like you can't just take a class and you're going to be awesome at mindset. Well, know? then why are people offering classes well, well, about you, mindset that on well, Sunday you afternoon can, you're going to get a piece of paper yeah, that says you can, you can You can direct people your mind at how to do it. In, you know, you can set them on the path, but that's yeah. mindset's kind of a path they got to walk themselves. Um, and there's a lot of places to pick, you know, flowers and pick things up on the path, but you got to kind of walk that. But like marksmanship, you can teach and handling and tactics you can teach. And one of the biggest things I found is one of the biggest failures of police training is it's, it has always been traditionally very marksmanship oriented okay. and terrible on administrative and tactical gun handling, which are two very distinct different things. So we often handle the guns administratively which is, tends to be where all the bad stuff happens. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. because we, every, we, we, pay, AD is, we pay lip yeah. service to it. Right. You know, we don't really teach people how to administratively handle guns. I've, I've, <laughs> I've only, 
I got to say, in all the days of classes and training, I've never had someone try and teach me to speed reholster. Right, but how many people do it? You know, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. the problem. So, and, and then how we teach in-field gun handling, we don't spend a lot of time on it because it's not cool. You know, how to hold it, how to manipulate it, how to get, you know, what I call flowing the gun. Okay. You know, how to maneuver around people without violating any of the safety rules. Yeah. Uh, we're huge on how we teach safety. It's like our safety brief is an hour. You know, most people see how fast they can read the four basic safety rules, you know, and then go ready, break, and let's go train. And so with ours, it's an hour because we, we delve into each one of them and why they're important. Cause yeah. we, we teach it as a uh, responsibility lifestyle. And so, you know, I, I noted one of the big problems in police training was how we were doing the gun handling. So I instituted a ton of that. And so that's sort of my thing is when Wayne and I are teaching together, I sort of walk on, I let Wayne do his thing on the marksmanship and I do my thing on the handling. And it, it provides, I think, a better experience for the student. Sure. Uh, and why yeah. we teach with two very different instructors. You get to hear us argue about Whataburger versus In-N-Out. Uh, you know, things like that. Okay. What, if shorts should be worn outside the home or inside. Only. Apparently, Wayne does own shorts. He just doesn't wear them out. out. Yeah, where okay. I apparently, very rarely will you see me in long pants. You okay. know, so it's a, you know, it's a thing. It's a California versus Texas thing. But the, uh, we, we enjoy ourselves, and then we think it's good for the students to have instructors with different backgrounds. So, oh, I, I think absolutely. You know, it's, it makes yeah. it kind of fun. But the, uh, that was one of the biggest weaknesses I saw is I found that a lot of shootings are – they're, they're problem-solving, and most of, and Pat Rogers and I used to talk about this all the time, like shoot house work. Shoot houses are not that difficult as far as the shooting problems. You're yeah. generally inside of room distance. You know, you're talking like five to seven yards maybe. If you got a hallway, it's, you know. The shots are not that difficult if we just hung a target, a one-dimensional target, on a on a square range. Sure. But then you put all the problems in of maneuvering, where you're positioning yourself, getting the gun into action. Should you take a shot or not? Uh, is it a shootable target or not? Threat assessment, evaluation. There's so many factors involved. All of a sudden, simple marksmanship problems become almost overwhelming you know and yeah. like advanced shooting yeah i love advanced shooting because <laughs> like advanced shooting is the same as regular shooting okay with a lot le more problems sure. associated like yeah. you, like you, your primary strong hand doesn't work so now it's a now it becomes an advanced thing because the problem is more difficult yeah or you're you're laying under a car instead of standing up or you know, whatever the problem is, or, or now, you know, the target's dynamically moving, or there's lots of things you're not supposed to be shooting or muzzling in between you and the opponent. All of these become a problem, which become make, make with shooting advanced. advanced <laughs> yeah, yeah, now it's, yeah. so, so you have. But if you can you do have, that, if, if, the, if, if, if you have focused on the absolute fundamental of marksmanship, so that it has become an unconscious action, 
then you have a lot more horsepower available to to right. to deal with the which is part. sort of our whole principle of how we train is we try to get people and I I didn't invent this I this this I I flat stole from LAPD's D platoon firearms cadre okay. flat stole it watching how these guys trained and then watching them apply it into problem solving shoot house work practical exercises and stuff what I saw firsthand and the biggest thing I learned was, wow, you know, these guys shoot problems just like they shoot the qualification course. Extremely controlled speed, extremely controlled accuracy, super disciplined. And they're basically going out and shooting a very realistic speed qual course over and over and over and over again that or set of range drills basically that becomes sort of a uh, shortcut in the brain right into the subconscious and there's only so much you can load onto that shortcut and oh, you know yeah. one of the things you know one of the uh, training world terms that it just sends me through the roof well it's another tool for the toolbox okay we all know that dude <laughs> who's got a garage that's full of every swap meet tool in yeah. the world. And that's the guy you go, hey, I need a whatever wrench. And they can't find it because there's 72 of them in there somewhere. And I tell people, look, if it was me, and I, I, I'm one of those guys who shouldn't touch tools, which is why I have long, expensive friendships with gunsmiths, is... If it's me, I want a snap-on toolbox that's incredibly well organized with just what I need in there. Yeah. You know, and it's all of the highest quality. That's what I want. I don't want a lot of tools that suck or that I can't find when I need them or that I have too many choices. I want a simple solution yeah. preloaded into the into the computer. And that way you just punch the button. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it goes right to the tool. And, you know, one of the things we we overtrained on was failure drills. Uh, okay. You know, the yeah. traditional yeah. Uh, two control presses to the body, single controlled press to the head. Um, and the head's taken as it, the assessment is, is the head still there? Uh, and y you know what happened is we we shot it so much, so often. I shot it every day. Um, every day after work, my partner and I would go into the range. Mm -hmm. We'd shoot uh, LAP SWAT quals and some other stuff, and we're shooting about 200, 250 rounds a day before we go home. And most of that was done as failure drills inside of 10 yards. And my guys who were not shooters but who that's all they did, you know, when you applied a problem, well, then they applied a single, <laughs> a, a pair, a failure drill, or they went right to the head on a hostage shot, of, of which they knew how to do all three of those things at a subconscious level. You know, the last shooting I was in, um, I fired a single to a guy in close quarters in a bar that was drawn on me. Well, he was actually drawing to shoot another guy in the back of the head, but, you know, it was a, a very close problem, and I had a full-facing uh, target when I started my trigger press at about three yards which is a pretty fast, going to be a fast trigger press. Yeah. And it seemed to take kind of forever uh, as time wore. But I had planned to give the guy a pair. I mean, it was like in the thing. I fired one, and the guy went down so hard, I didn't fire the second round. You know, So it kind of d dispelled the theory that, well, if that's all you practice doing. Well, a lot of my guys ended problems with one round. Even though they were normally pressing two, 
Yeah. Okay. Those rounds are controlled. So you so and, at and assessment it, speed. If you're shooting at a speed in which you can stop, then when you get the reaction you want, you stop. Right. And if the reaction isn't there, you continue, but you're shooting at a very high level of accuracy and in complete control. Um, you know, I, I, it was funny, you know, my wife was looking at that picture of you last night, you know, hanging off a piece of ice with a, with a, you know, a pick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, at, at what point, you know, do you got to really kind of be a massive control of the situation? Because, you, you, you know, th that's not going to be the time for like, yeah, sort of winging it, you know, you, you, you do it because you train for a level of control yeah. in extreme level of adversity. Um, now I would do that and fall off, but I'm sure that wasn't the first time that you had hung by one arm from a tool or something simulating. Probably that. not the first. Probably no. not the first. No, I'm know. guessing actually the first time it happened, however, was, <laughs> was an, an accident. accident. <laughs> but you had probably spent time training hanging from things yeah. by one arm. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my favorite Scotty Reedsisms was, uh, you know, you will not try something new. You know, there's not going to be some new solution to this. Yeah. In the middle of a crisis is not going to be the time to do something to wing it on a first time drop down it's, menu. Yeah, and, it's not. You know, it's not going to. It's not going to work yeah. out for you. So, yeah. you want to have sort of these simple solutions preloaded, which allows your brain to free itself to problem solving because the kind of the tool to solve the problem is already there. But I think that right there is is you know regardless of what the tool is or what the problem is, having the preloaded solutions available i mean yeah it does go against let's say you know bruce lee who's one asking whether you you know you are responding by rote you know right. because you've you know rehearsed or or are you having a new and fresh experience with the the opponent each time right which as fantastic as, as wonderful as that sounds you know there is we are installing responses um, you know, with any form of training, right? Which, uh, um, but I, I completely agree with you. Like, I want to, I don't need to have any more experience with Hicks Law of like having too many options and not being able to make a decision or making a decision too slowly, right? Uh, um, but but what you just, you know just said is look like I, I have these you know the presets, if you will, the, you know the, the the appropriate responses installed, and I select the one that is appropriate in the situation right. that goes outside of it, it moves outside of shooting. It moves into climbing. I mean, it moves into sh taking, right. making photographs. It moves into running a business, you know, all of those, you know, it's, that is a universal. One choice. of the yeah. takeaways from your book that's kind of funny with this was it kind of confirmed some stuff for me. So when most of us neophytes who have never mountain climbed in our life, nor much of a desire to, you know, like I said, if there's a gondola, that's how I'm going to the top of the mountain for the view, you know? Yeah. Same here for me. <laughs> yeah. Now. I mean, now, yeah. I mean, you kind of, yeah, is you, you have that t-shirt. Now you can take yeah. the gondola and see how the rest of us do it, you know? So with me as a neophyte with mountain climbing or any of that, you know, I always associated from watching it on TV or documentaries with a lot of equipment. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot going on. There's all this, you know, or, or, you know, I would just like, I could spend a day like, you know, in, you know, 
uh, a climbing section of one of the sporting stores of just looking at you know carabiners and all the equipment and bags like, and what ropes do you do with that thing yeah, yeah it, it, but there's a ton of stuff you know and yeah. i sort of relate this to the shooting community you got so much junk out there you know to use and tools and things and gadgets and and uh you know, glittery, twinkling things that for most of us, oh my God, and it comes in all sorts of colors, you know, sure. and stuff. And then I'm reading your book, you know, here's this guy like assaulting some of the most incredible mountains on the planet with almost no gear. You know, I'm sitting here going, well, somebody has figured out like exactly what he needs and maximized execution of that to solve these problems with very simple terms and not be overly dependent on gear. And yeah. I go, and, and you know, anybody, I, I would be the biggest hypocrite in the world to tell you I'm not in love with my gear. Because, like, my wife wants to kill me because my garage looks like a police equipment warehouse. I mean, I have everything. Because any time I get a job, you know, there's a whole new set of gear that goes with it. So I'm, sure. I'm big on gear, but... On the other hand, the training, I try to make it fairly simple. And uh, one of the best quotes I got from uh, John Helms from LAPD is he goes, look. And, you know, this guy is like, nobody knows who John is, which is kind of the way John wants it. But, you know, the guy is, when it comes to gunfighting, there isn't much out there better than John. And be like, look, I just need a gun. I just need sights I can see, a trigger I can manage, and boringly reliable. But he doesn't care what it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like whatever you hand him, if it meets those criteria, you know, we're good. And, you know, we're, we're, you know, you got all these guys now. It's like, well, if I don't have my special snowflake Glock special snowflake trigger and I have this and yeah. these sights and these cuts on the slide and can't do this without a magwell. Okay. You know, okay, all that stuff's neat and it all works and it all came out of sort of the uh, sporting shooting community. Yes. And it's all good, you know. And there's sort of a place for it. But the fact remains, you know, there was a time we did some amazing work, you know, with... With the Crown Vic. And revolvers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I always like to point to the GIGN guys from France. You know, I want to, one of the slides in a PowerPoint I do has got a picture of a GIN, GIGN guy with his revolver. I go, you know, this guy was taking down airliners full of terrorists with a revolver. You know, not that I'm recommending it, but it can be done. You know, I mean, yeah. don't so discount the, the simplicity of being good with something. Now, part of those guys' qualifications is they shoot a, a like, graduation. Like, y y you shoot a, a clay bird okay, off one of your teammates' chest at 25 yards wearing armor without revolver. Now... The, the 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 safety dude oh, in me says Russian yeah the them. safety dude <laughs> in me says absolutely never yeah but they're foreign dudes and foreign dudes you know like I said like Russians or you know you never want to take that stuff but I gotta hand it to you you know is the guy of you're actually to the point where you can shoot and I, you know my buddy had trained quite a bit with both GSG nine GIGN all those teams back in kind of the seventies when everybody was spinning up like and kind figuring of figuring out. it out yeah. they all really worked together well. And he told, I mean, he said, yeah, the, the GIGN guys on those those 
you know, revolvers, those manual revolvers, or the guys are just sick on those things, on how good they are. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you can do this stuff. Again, I don't recommend, but, you know, I, I sit there and go, look, you know, I work some of the most violent times. You know, we talk now about violence, you know, in the streets. And I go, yeah, you guys are, wait, wait, just, it. I go, we're just doing 1968 again. I go, wait till we do the 70s again. Because yeah. like the 70s and like New York, I mean, you know, that's staggering homicide numbers. You know, uh, L.A. during the crack wars was just crazy. What years was Pat working in New York? Early, early, early 70s through okay. the, you know, 80s. Yeah, so he started in the early 70s. So, he, you know, kind of coming back from Vietnam like a lot of those guys. Um and you know, the, you, you know, handed you a thirty-eight and a wood stick, and like go to work, you know. And you know, and it's funny because I use this as an analogy. As I said, lucky, I kind of came up with this epiphany the other day. Is when I started as a cop, most of my supervisors were all Vietnam era vets. Yeah who were yeah. kind of toward the tail end of their career. But these guys all had come out of them. It was sort of a thing. You left the military and went into police work, you know. Um, <laughs> those guys in the 70s who were coming back from Vietnam and being police, the only reason the 70s wasn't worse than it was, was you had a bunch of Vietnam-era veteran guys being supervised by greatest generation World War II and Korea War vets. See, there was that connection back then. Is like you, you didn't have like like dudes like me. Like, uh, yeah, bro, I went to San Diego State, and then I became a cop. That <laughs> wasn't done. It's like I went to the U.S. Army, yeah, and then became a cop. You know, that's sort of how that transition went, or some branch of the military, and mm -hmm. then into law enforcement. Or you had, you know, particularly if you know you're an Irish kid in New York. Well, somebody's dad, seven uncles, three cousins are all New York cops. I mean, you come out of a culture of it. So they had the benefit of greatest generation military vets. Yeah. And I mean, you can't even fathom, you know, when you think about the losses we had in World War II, I mean, it's just staggering. Yeah, you know, where you're losing to many guys in one day on a remote island somewhere that we've lost like an entire global war on terror. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're talking staggering numbers. So these are hard, hard Americans training <laughs> dudes coming out of Vietnam, which was no, you know, which was horrible, yeah, you know, for how they were treated and kind of the conditions working under. And they became cops and, you know, working under very difficult conditions and times of horrendous violence and change. And then running into people and saying, hey, hippie freak, right. I remember <laughs> you from that protest. Yeah. And then this is my wooden stick. stick. Yeah. Here's the <laughs> shampoo. I guess it's yeah. Like <laughs> so. Then my generation, you know, comes in and kind of the tail end of the, in the 80s when, you know, crack was, I, I, I mean, I tell people I started at Colors and ended at, you know, End of Watch, if you want to watch okay. movies about. But yeah. my, started working, LA, Colors was exceptional for sort of the feel of work in Southern California. And I mean. And, you know, the I, gang members actually looked like that. I mean, it was like, it was like. It, it, Dennis it, Hopper was well, I always uh, tell everybody I started as Sean Penn and ended as Dennis, Dennis Hopper. Hopper yeah. Right? I mean, you know, it's or, or no, it wasn't Dennis Hopper. It was uh, no uh, Robert Duvall. Dennis Hopper directed. Did it? Okay, the, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But character-wise, yeah. It, but I mean, it was unbelievable, you know. And like I said, the gang members—they looked like that. I mean, it, crime was glorious. Yeah. 
you know, and when I started and you, you had this incredible time, but we sort of crushed crime in the 90s yeah. with sort of those tail end of those Vietnam guys running the program with kind of these uh, great or, uh, you know, um, gen... What general? Gen I Xers. have no idea. No, like, the, the first, because my wife, you know, 65, Gen X, so we're the okay. first of the, um, you know, latchkey kids and stuff. You know, now it was kind of a, a right time. And I sit here and look at now and I go, oh, God. You know, because, like, they're not trying to get, you know, the best trainees I had were military kids, particularly if they had deployed, mm-hmm. were fantastic. But that's not what's getting recruited in law enforcement. You're getting these kids with no life experience. You know, so you're going to have kind of Gen Y, and I spend that spell that W H Y. Yeah, supervising Tide Pods. Yeah, and it's it should be interesting. You know, I mean, so is it relatively universal that your uh, post is sort of a 26 week program? You know, around the country, or is it longer in some other places? Um, Some are longer, some are shorter. So for me, it was 18 weeks. Okay. Um. In the academy I went to was brutal. Uh, in the that's sort of a you know I mean if you want to talk about a difference. So when I went to the police academy, mm-hmm. uh, we lost two thirds of the starting class. Okay. Okay. So, if you lost two thirds now, they'd kill you. I mean that's not oh, the yeah. goal. The goal when I started was they were trying to wash you out of the academy. Uh, that was they were priding themselves on how many they could get rid of. And now, I mean, the thought of washing anybody out is like they'll bend over backwards to not to wash. Not, and, because, and to relax standards and, you right. know, and it's a, whatever well, level it, in order. Well, hiring cops is a huge investment. You know, the psych test, the backgrounds, the polygraph, the this, the that. I mean, it, it's, it's an expensive, long process. And if you tell these guys now that, you know, oh, we're trying to get rid of most of them in the academy, that that's not... And, and it may not have been the right way to do things. I, I mean, and it would have drove you nuts. I mean, just on the fitness stuff. Sure. It was unsafe torture. You know, we're we're running dirt paths, you know, these serpentine dirt paths in dress shoes. Yeah. You, you know, and they're sitting there going, oh, watch another guy out on a, on a broken ankle today. You yeah, know, yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, that, and they don't care, you know. Um, so... You know, the injuries and stuff, yeah, there was probably better ways to do some of that. But, boy, they made you hard. And you were better equipped. And who got through it were had, much, had, well, had their character oh, tested. Yeah, and then you went to FTO training. That was a whole – that was designed to wash you out as well. I mean, that okay. was – you know, I, I did things different as a field training officer. To me, the inside of the car was a classroom. When we were outside the car, you got to call me sir. You've got to – do all of these things for the culture inside the car was a classroom and very relaxed. That's not how I was necessarily trained. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, you know, but phase training was very difficult too. And then your first year on probation, they'd fire you for nothing. I mean, we talked about it yesterday on, you know, I've been appendix carrying since 1989 because right. I destroyed my shoulder on an arrest. When back then, if you got hurt while you were on probation, they fired you. 
they didn't fix it. They got you know, they just They're terminated. Just like, we've you, got you, a minimum investment. We're not going any further. If you call, yeah. if you call in, and said, "Hey, I need six months off for shoulder surgery and recovery and stuff," they'd be like, "You know, okay, it's been really nice having you. Here's your, <laughs> you know, go go when you come back. Maybe you can go to the academy for somebody else again or do whatever. You know, you're done. You know, so you just didn't fix things. You know, you just sucked it up and you know you live with bursitis and a horrible shoulder the rest of your life. You know. But so a lot of stuff we do better now with with understanding sports physiology and medicine and, and these type of things. But by the same token, we're lowering standards, particularly shooting use of force. Some of these to um, what uh, we call is you know no cop left behind you know shooting qualifications this type of stuff, and it's causing all sorts of issues that are absolutely horrendous and to me but also largely the, preventable right it, it, well, well the idea is if we don't teach them to shoot then they won't shoot anybody which is you and i both know oh that's it's wrong the, the the more confident people are as a shooter they can allow a problem to get more involved involved before you have to use lethal force if you yeah. have no really good lethal force tools you can't let that problem get very far yeah when fear takes over and emotion steals the day from logic and you know proper responses same thing so i've submitted no less than yeah i calculated out as well over 150 people i've submitted with a carotid control hold on the street okay okay it's over and done with in about six seconds. Nobody gets hurt. Um, it was great during the times we were dealing a lot with PCP, methamphetamine, crack overdoses and stuff. Because, like, tasers and all that stuff doesn't work on those people, particularly the PCP stuff. It, it, none of that works. The only thing that works is you, you, you restrict the blood and they... they go to sleep for a couple minutes you handcuff them and wake them up and the whole world's delicious i mean we, we I've, i can't ever recall seeing any injuries from this stuff or stuff and it prevented a lot of them from dying i mean we were joking <laughs> in here recently about like all you know police officers should be purple belts in brazilian jiu-jitsu right you know, just because <laughs> but, like then but, you've but been... what's funny is you know we got all these clowns in, in, in government and who don't know what they're talking about, ban the chokehold. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, let's ban the UFC. How many people have you seen die in the UFC from a carotid submission? Like, zero? Yeah. I mean, and, uh, and, you know, and, you, and, you, and banning it, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, like... Well, why don't you go look well, at you know? Why don't you look at it from a different perspective? We got people, which is let us train, train individuals it. to a high enough level that that it that it's the we have that it can be used with some finesse because you're right in in the terms of like, I mean, I, I don't know that the thing. Uh, I, I'm not buying that both tasers malfunctioned in Wisconsin. I'm well, buying that he well, shrugged them. You know, maybe one. No, was a no. Miss, Are you kidding? I, you know, I worked at a heavy taser agency. Okay. Okay. You, you know what? I didn't carry a, a taser. spare battery. A ta I didn't carry a taser. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you know why I didn't carry one? Because everybody was so dependent on those stupid things that failed all the time. Okay. 
and somebody like failed and, to do their job, job like, right? Like you the charge. Or no, they, these crooks look just... like a fishing tackle display. They got okay. somebody darts in them, and they could they shrug it off. And what I did is that's when I'd come in and sink a carotid and call it a day. Okay, you know, or I'd be the guy to go physical, put the guy on the ground, do you know, some you know Whatever. grappling yeah. stuff, and you know because I was already ready. It, there were so many people ready to use a taser because that way you didn't have to learn how to fight. Sure. Then, and so this is this actually goes back to the um, the you know a little bit the climbing analogy of like yeah it can be very gear intensive, um, but most people like when it is gear intensive the equipment is being used to make up for a lack of individual skill. Well, and and they yeah. have no kind of response to when it doesn't work. Well, there, there, there's that, <laughs> right. and, and with a lot of the, with the military training, you know, one of one of my instructional tropes, let's say, was look, what if weighs a lot? Like, if you were trying to carry a bunch of shit to address every situation that you have not, you know, that, that you could have prepared yourself as an individual to address or to be comfortable in that situation, well, you're going to be carrying an enormous fucking pack. But skill right. <laughs> and experience weigh nothing, and you have them with you all the time, right? And so I think, like what you just said, you know, real, okay, I'm going to rely on this piece of equipment so that I don't have to master a particular skill or be exposed to a particular skill or train in a certain way. Like I, I don't want to, you know, if if I have my taser, I don't have to learn how to fight. Right. That <laughs> is, like, oh well, there's a problem with the, I, the, I, with the world in general. I used to see that, for example, number. with the lasers on on handguns. All okay. The time. Yeah. It's visible laser. Visible lasers that you know. Then you don't have to learn how to shoot because you watch the laser. And I, I can't tell you how many of our guys, you know, when they start buying that stuff, they show up to the range, and you know they come up and they and you know they turn around, look at you, and go, I can't, I, I can't see my 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 beam <laughs> yeah and they just stand there you know i'm like uh yeah they put those bumpy things are still on the top of your gun and they still work you know they're just overly Idiot. and you know it gets so gear dependent on that stuff that you lose the fundamentals and all of those things are great like red dot sights on pistols so i was shooting a competitive open class revolver in like the late 90 or i'm sorry late 80s early 90s okay with an aim point with an aim point on, on top yeah right. a rather large one at that yes doing the lord's work with a revolver that would stand on its barrel i mean yeah. you know and cuz i was really big on shooting speed plates so yeah. i would literally show up in uniform i'd go to work early cuz i always worked graveyard um, i worked 19 years of my career i worked at night you know oh, so on weekends cuz you know who isn't there at night on weekends Supervisor, Super, yeah. executive yeah. level yeah. people the, who the, hated the me. Pole. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what I would do on Friday nights is I'd go to work, I'd get my police car, gear up, you know, uniform, and I'd drive down to the range. And our local range would run, and it was almost like Friday night drags. Man, you ran speed plates, man-on-man -man speed plates. And so, you know, I'd shoot open class revolver. I'd shoot my duty revolver, which was hilarious because they'd have to empty the range out for me to shoot my duty gun. Because, you know, all the gamers would shoot these, you know, oh, low power loads. Low power yeah. loads that would barely yeah. knock a plate down. Yeah. Okay, well, my loads would knock the plate down and it'd come back up. Yeah. You know, and then it's throwing stuff all over the range. But, you know, so my open class revolver, I was shooting a red dot. Um, I put a T1 aim point because, you know, I worked for the company at the time. I put a T1. Okay. On a Glock yeah. 17, you know, the unity mount? Yeah. 
Okay, that was Mark Housel and I. I th that was the first one Mark Housel did for me. We broke so much stuff trying to figure that out. So, you know, Hilarious. I was shooting a red dot Glock way back, you know, in, in 2009 or something like that, okay. you know, with, a, with an aim point on it. And, you know, so I get the red dot, and it's a wondrous thing. But here's the thing, to be really good at it, you have to train harder yeah. than you do on traditional iron sights. And, you know, a lot of people are throwing these things on guns thinking it's a magic, uh, you know, it's the red pill. Yes. And it's not if you won't put the work in. And, you know, I'm kind of at the stage in life where, like, you know, I've got so much time on regular irons. Like, I won't shoot a carbine. And actually, I was like, the red dot on a shotgun, to me, is the greatest thing ever. It's the best place for it. Okay. Um, so the very first gun Hans Vang ever put a pick rail on was mine. <laughs> so I was shooting a red dot. The Like when the M2 aim point was released, mm -hmm. yeah, that was on my shotgun. You know, that's how far back that one went. You know, I look at these guys. Yeah. And then as soon as we get the aim point micros on 12 gauges, to me, it's like not fair. It's like put the dot on and send a 70 caliber pumpkin, yeah. you know, behind it. And you're working well within the range where the dots really work, you know. Yes. On a lot of the carbines, I like a low power variable. Okay. Or, a, or a, well, I had ACOG number 687. Okay, so I've been on that train. Yeah. So my ideal setup is I like like an ACOG with an offset aim point micro is my carbine setup I okay. like on an AR. And the, the, the ACOG is three, three and a half power? Yeah, like four. That. Yeah, three depending. Half, the older yeah. ones were four. And then, okay. well, you got them all the way up to like six now or more. But, you know, I, I run a four power ACOG or with an offset aim mm -hmm. point, And that to me is like the optimal thing on a carbine. Shotgun, man, I just love a red dot on a shotgun. Pistol, okay. I'm kind of can go either way on. I get it with if you have aging eyes, allows you a lot of leeway with what you're looking at, threat evaluation stuff. There's a lot of things, but you have to spend more time on it. It's not a freebie. So do you have to, do you feel like you have to spend more time on it because you are unlearning a different system because of X number of years using iron sights, or is it? It's it's its own it, thing. So you have got to put that in front of your eye. Yes. You know, so the <laughs> first red dot you I can't was backplate. Right. So the first as, one I was can. running I don't know. that I spent more time with initially was an RMR. Okay. On a Glock. And what I found was if it's sitting next to my bed on the nightstand and I grabbed the gun in the middle of the night and pointed at the doorway. I couldn't find the dot most of the time. I mean, because you're you're laying down; it's a completely asymmetric position. It's but that's how I'm likely going to be using the gun. Sure. In all okay. honesty, yeah. so it just I was like, God, this really doesn't work real well. You know, this kind of sucks. Um, it, it was great standing up, and I could put the dot on a consistent draw stroke to where it needed to be. That that was one thing. But it was I found all the kind of so laying the down on positions. the ground. Yeah, anything yeah. weird was like kind of not. It was a lot of work. So what I liked about running, so that's when I threw it. We I worked with Housel to try to figure out how to put a T1 on it because what I liked about the T1 was it was round in the yeah. back in a tube. Yeah. So all I needed to do was put the circle where I wanted it to be, and I could kind of, on close stuff, just use the whole circle. Yeah. And, but so you're it, basically backplating it, with the circle. Right. It told sense. me, but the circle told my eye where the dot is. Yeah. So that was kind of thing. And if you look back, some of the original guys, I mean, so, uh, 
you know, Boresight Solutions just threw a picture up of one of their original guns with a T1 on it. Uh, uh, Don Edwards, um, mm-hmm. you know, still got one with a T1. But, you know, I still have my original G17 with that prototype mount with a T1. And all of us who go back, like, you know, a decade plus on this. And then just you know, re- remember well, the old Seymour. Yeah, well, what's funny is we were all like running micro aim points on them, and they still work. And they still work really good. And the, and that one battery you put in 10 yeah, years ago? Yeah, it's still, still, it's still, 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 yeah, they like still it. go on, you know. And so, so, I mean, it kind of, you're, you're back to, but, you know, we've yeah. done a lot with them. And I think, it, it, I just don't think we're there, but we're getting awfully close. I tell people with the red dots where I'm at on it is when the gun is engineered around the red dot, where the dot doesn't move and the slide reciprocates and the dot doesn't, and to me, it needs to be kind of in the front where the front side is rather than in the back. But, you know, Okay. And, uh, but when we get to the point where the dot's not moving, mm-hmm. just the slide is, and it's super low to the gun and kind of where we're normally looking for a front sight, yeah. I think we're there okay. for just giving to everybody like candy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're getting close. And a lot of, and what we've got now is we've got a lot of guys, you know, who are dedicated at training these. Sure. Uh, my my kind of twin brother, Eric Gelhouse, from a different mother, is doing a lot of stuff like a gun sight with him. Uh, Scott Jedlinski. There's a lot of guys out there doing some really deep red dot stuff mm-hmm. dedicated to that, which is super because that's where uh, Aaron Cohen, you know, there's, there's guys who are really deep diving in it. And you kind of need to deep dive because it's, sort of new yeah to get there so um it's a good thing but the problem is is with it with it reciprocating like so so the dot is moving as iron sights would move on the the slide um are you have you been finding that like you're more likely to lose the dot during the recoil cycle depending on how and see again it's kind of how you're shooting the gun Okay. You know, and, kind of, and the other thing is, so I got a really good friend um, who's an incredible technical shooter. And we used to fight like old women on the internet. And now we're like, we talk almost every day, okay. you know, and, and he's an incredible technical shooter. And I've always been, it's a force tool. So yeah. we're, we kind of have that meet in the middle. And he's done some incredible work with Red Dot and training and going to, you know, really solid dudes. I think he just finished up a class with uh, Ben Steiger and stuff. So there's, I mean, okay. he's going to the best to, to do this. And what he, one of the things he said to me that really made a ton of sense was he goes, okay, when we're trying to take a precision shot at 25 yards, what's our sight picture look like? Well, it's perfect. Okay, at three yards, what does your iron sight picture look like? Kind of a mess. You know, it's kind of the whole back of the slide and sort of a dotty blur or whatever's up there. He goes, well, on your red dot, what's your sight picture look like at three yards? Perfect. What's it look like at 50 yards? Perfect. Perfect. He goes, so what we're figuring out is we can get pretty rough with it in close, like irons, but you kind of don't want to because it's perfect, (laughs) you know? And so a lot of it is is retraining the mindset to how to train those dots. And that's a road you got to kind of decide you're going to go that pathway. And for me, it's like, yeah, I'm having so much fun doing all this other stuff. Do I really want to like invest the that. ammo and training sure. time right now? Just trying to invest ammo and training time into maintaining my skill as an older American, mm-hmm. you know, is like, yeah, I qualify for an AA part RP card now. I mean, I went out my 55th birthday and went and got a senior meal at 
you know, nice. just because I could, yeah. you know. And so, you know, I'm like kind of at the stage in life, do I really want to go take this trek? But you know what? If I was 23 again, I, I'd be so hard. deep in red dots, it wouldn't be funny, yeah, you it's, know. It's, it's like, I've been, <laughs> because that's where it's going. Oh, it's you for know, sure. That's and it's only going to get better. better. I mean, one of the things, because I was, I was asking about, you know, losing the dot in the recoil cycle is that um, Chris Woomer from uh, Vale Solutions has like – a rather beautiful spreadsheet that he's put together, <laughs> like where he's, he, you know, he has tested everything against the clock and, and accuracy wise. And so, and he's just like, yeah, I put a comp on the gun, you know, yeah, you call me, say that a comp, you know, nine mil comp gun is bullshit, but yeah. look how flat, the, look at this thing does not move. And see, and so not losing the, you know, just. And like, that's where, see, I don't get too excited anymore. Like, so like sure. 20 years ago, I would have been doing the spreadsheet with, let's do it again. Yeah. You know, I mean, I would have been that guy. I, and, and, you know, because it's where my head was. And sort of now I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty good at assessment speed. Yeah. And so if the gun shoots a skosh flatter for me. And so I shoot a Langdon PX4 compact now is pretty much, my wife and I both carry pretty much twin guns. I'm either carrying that or a revolver or both. And... That is because my hands are so arthritic. I call mm -hmm. it a girl gun. So it's like because of the rotating barrel, it's like the easiest gun out there to manipulate and work the slide. Okay. It is probably the flattest recoiling nine out there, and you don't need a compensator for it. Interesting. And the gun's round, and I carry appendix, so a round gun for me is great. So, yeah. and, and I love DASA guns because I get that thinking trigger and then a shooting trigger, and it's going home to mama for me anyways. So I'm, like, really down with that, that thing. And so, like, for me, adding comps and all that, and it, believe me, there was a day. I mean, I was shooting a triple-chambered comp, competition gun when that stuff knew i got um again being you know tj's custom gunworks was in the city i worked in and yeah. you know he was a freak about being awake all night working on guns and i worked graveyard and his shop was in my beat so i'd bring him like m&ms and you know <laughs> nice. and, and you know and, and caffeine drinks and i was like the he wasn't really a good people person so i was the only one he allowed in his shop because i knew not to bother him i just like to watch him work because he did everything by hand but he was like i think the first one to do a triple chamber compensator okay and so who do you think was like the first guy to have a triple chamber comp hey, on my gun yeah. you know and, and even shooting that gun today it, it looks like a steam locomotive i mean the amount of junk oh. it puts straight up in the air oh, is yeah. phenomenal and you're going well that really works you know i mean so it's yeah there was a time and a place for it in life and sure. you know the rolling specials and and working the dots with the compensators and the recoil reduction stuff you know i i get it but it's part of the path yeah you know these guys are experimenting but they may find that, you know, maybe if I track the dot different, I don't need all this recoil compensation. Maybe if I aim or I'm using the dot differently or tracking it in recoil different, I don't need I mean, I don't to know if, death grip the gun. Yeah. You know, so maybe there's some stuff out there, but we're still at the figuring it out stage. It's, I mean, one of the fascinating things for me, and I was like kind of against the whole deal, um, although you probably saw my slide over at Steve's shop. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we probably did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, was because well, well, I was thinking of having a slide over it there too. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's. Yeah. Anyway, we he 
you know, we took a, a, my Gen 3 G17 and, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. a, it's set for an RMR. I just need to go over and Cerakote it now. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I realized, like, wait, to change the battery on this thing, I have to remove it from the... Okay, and then the loophole, you don't have to, but then they're apparently not, they, there's they, some issues. issues. They, and then they, there's a, every one of them has a flea or yeah. two. Yeah. And, you know, like right and Bill now, was running, I guess, in, is it the Acro? Yeah, and the, the Acro, and the Acro and, is a fantastic site, but the batteries ain't great because yeah. they went to a small battery so it could stay on. You know, so yeah. and, and, you know, and, and all of these companies will start adjusting. And, you know, Hollow uh, Sun has come yep. a long way from Chinese junk to the Hollow Sun did a weird thing, and I think that's maybe that they they actually listened to some of the subject matter experts here. Okay, yeah. And made modifications. You know, there's a concept of, so you know, weird. actually enge- yeah, talking well, to people because, like, engineers, like – hate talking to shooters yeah. and it, it in and if they're european engineers it, you g- just stop because like talking to american like barbaric shooters yeah. about how to make things that is not in their wheelhouse of way to do stuff oh specifically <laughs> northern U- european engineers i, I think okay. it's just all of them yeah okay. the uh I, I think they all have their 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 problems on why they don't want to listen to Americans, depending on if you're yeah. in Italy, France, Germany, or the northern countries. I'm sure there's a different reason different why 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 not, not to, to listen to yes. American shooters. Because yeah. like we just shoot stuff till it breaks, which is so non-European. You know, yeah. it's like reloading ammo. It's like you do what? Yeah. I, I mean, like at home, you make a bullet. You know, yeah. like not in a clean, quality-controlled factory, controlled by some agency engineers in, yeah, i mean <laughs> weird yeah. you know so it, it's a different thing so the uh yeah so I, I think all the red dots right now have some fleas of one variety or another okay and that's part of the development process yeah um yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know we went down this road just going to semi-automatic pistols back in my era of what kind of worked and didn't and figuring them out and so, you know, it's like, you know, I tell people now, I go, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, you shoot one of those double action, single action autos. That's so 1980s. I go, you have, no, like I said, we're yeah. in the golden age of it right now. So you know, 30 years later, <laughs> we yeah. really know how to make the guns. We know how to train to shoot them. And we know what works Yeah, 30 years later. You know, is if we had all of this knowledge like 30 years ago, it would have been fantastic. And it's funny because the, um, the old stuff is, you know, has, has been you through know, it all along. I'll it's talk, just like, it, you know, oh, I want, a, I want a striker-fired gun that shoots like a 1911. Yeah. It, like, it, wait. <laughs> but that's not good sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exa- well, it, it, exactly. But yeah. the 1911 still has, you know, it has survived. Right. Like and all and, of that. Think about, think about it. It's a 110 year old gun. Yeah. And, well, you know, and when did it really start getting good? Because it wasn't in 1911. Point taken. It wasn't in 1931 even. I mean, yeah. that gun didn't start getting particularly good to like the 70s. You know, and then, you know, and then it took another 30 plus years of that of really getting the things figured out. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it's kind of a crazy thing. But, you know, I'll tell you kind of a funny story. So that goes back to like when I came back from LAPD SWAT. 
So we were really trying to figure the DASA guns out because like part of their qual was two rounds, four seconds from the ready at 25 yards. Which, if you didn't really know how to shoot a DASA gun right, which back then was sort of yeah. big revolver thing, let the trigger all the way out, slap it on the second shot, you had, a, yeah. you had a high and a low, and they were in different spots, and it was really difficult. And I remember uh, being in a class and watching high-speed video of Tommy Campbell shooting a DASA competition Smith auto because okay. remember back in the day Tommy Campbell was the factory yeah. Smith dude and shooting the hot new you know 945 or the 745 or one of their new DA uh, competition guns and it was kind of like high speed video was new back then I mean this is you know we're in yeah. VHS days yeah, you know yeah. I mean you know, <laughs> if you, which is, you know I, come on I, my, I was the only family my dad bought a Betamax because it was on sale so I mean you okay. know we had that so the I remember watching that video and watching Tommy Campbell's trigger finger, and he didn't come off the trigger and was barely moving it after the long DA shot would partially come off, reset, come back, press the trigger. So we started teaching that reset. Yeah. Now, that's gotten perverted into what we call kindergarten reset, where everybody pins, release, pin, release. Yeah. I mean, and some of that's a mix of sort of high-power military rifle shooting and yeah. sort of what we're – kind of what we were doing with this stuff with the DASA guns to figure them out. Um, I was in a class years ago, hardest class I've ever taken. So right when Larry Vickers got out of the military, um, he did a class for a bunch of – and it was all high-level instructors you know in the class yeah and so we got real larry i I mean and it was the worst thing i've ever been through so i think we shot about 400 rounds over two days which isn't a lot it not at all so anything out of the 10 on that b8 repair center was a miss not the nine anything out of the 10 was a miss and if you missed, you had to unload your pistol and do five perfect dry presses, reload, and then continue. Um, and you had that accuracy standard with Larry's evil timer. And I lived local to the class, and literally Sunday I could barely drive home. My brain was so melted from being under such stress that every single shot for two days had to be perfect. And I mean perfect and but what was funny is i was in the class with another very established uh police instructor and you probably heard of dean caputo Mm -hmm. uh dean's solid great instructor and dean and i are laughing at each other together because we're doing this whole fire pin the trigger to the rear reset till it clicks fire click you know because we teach we were teaching kindergarten shooting level cops yeah all the time that we had not allowed our Dean and, I, to progress. Dean and yeah. I can reset and recoil. Yeah. Uh, we just had never been forced to, but what we've been forced to do is demonstrate and shoot with kindergartners thousands and thousands and thousands. And so we were kind of used to shooting police demos and corrective diagnostic stuff. Mm-hmm rather than allow us to excel to the level we could. Yeah. And it was sort of the biggest takeaway from that was walking away from Larry's class with all of these new tools of 
like what hard really looked like. You know, I, yes. I mean, you know, shooting shooting the humbler was Larry was like backbreaking. I mean, if you've never done it before, and then you got Larry and the Evil Timer. You know, I mean, it's just it, it was just a bone breaking, ego busting experience. But like I said, one of the best shooting experiences I've ever been through because I was with students that let Larry teach to his maximum efficiency. None of us were there to get a Larry Vickers autograph on a certificate. Yeah. And that happens to a lot of the top-level instructors now. You know, when they first come out, uh, the only people taking classes for them are, are truly usually the, the you know, uh, diehards. Yeah. You know, that like, God, I want to take a class with this guy because I know who he is. Nobody else knows who he is, but I know from the community who these people are so you'll take classes and then pretty much word gets out and then becomes a thing like i just want that dude's autograph on a certificate because i saw him on tv or he's in all the magazines or youtube or whatever and then you're in these classes with these amazing instructors who've got four doofs in there yeah who have no business being there and they slow the whole thing down to a crawl you know because they didn't do the the pre-work. And all these instructors tell you what to expect before you get there. Yeah. And then some of these guys are like, well, I've been shooting all my life, so I don't need to do that. Those are like the worst words you ever hear as an instructor. It's my experience base, I've been shooting all my life. Well, you've been doing it wrong for... Yeah, have you been... Yeah, you know. or, or my other favorite is, you know, I was in the military, or, or you know, I'm a cop. And, the, you know, all of those, I'm like, you know, you just start shaking your head going, okay, here we go. Because that doesn't mean you're doing it right. It just means you've been probably doing it wrong for a long time. Yeah, and hopefully you will appreciate the taste of humble pie early on day one, and then fix it. shut the fuck up <laughs> and fix so it. that you don't um, you know, you know, my, drag other people down to your level. And my favorite, you know, you go to these classes now, and you see these guys. You know, they got a helmet on and a plate carrier and all that, and you're like, you're like, what do you do? Oh, I work in IT. I uh, LARP is yeah, wh- what I do. <laughs> well, why, why aren't you here in, like, khakis and a polo shirt, you know, loading out of your... And, you know, I can understand maybe throwing a light chest rig on just for class to get easy to carry, load yeah. lots of mags. But, I mean, dude, probably a plate carrier. You know, for some of us, the last thing I want to do right now is put armor and a helmet on. No if shit. I never wear another helmet or armor again the rest of my life, I'm good. My neck is such a disaster from spending 140 mile an hour hell, you know circles in a helicopter with a six pin, you know with a, one of the big older helmets. Yeah. You know, is the you know, last thing I want to see is a helmet. You know, and you know, I watch these guys showing up in class. It's so cool. I got my new helmet. I'm like, oh god, dude. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, yeah. Wait till the temperature is like when I was in Boise. I think it was the the day three with Bill Rapier. Uh, it was 106 degrees, and I, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that black helmet probably is really helping you out yeah you know i mean nobody was wearing a helmet in, but, in that class it, because people know better because they know who bill is yeah and, and, you, and you, you know ain't getting no piece of paper yeah <laughs> in the uh you know one of the classes i do it's a classroom class you know i did it a uh, range master a couple of years or maybe it was last year before we had to cancel this year it was a year before i did a class on uh you know uh mission drives the gear train you yeah. know and you know it's a typical pat thing and you know the whole thing was there to address like Define your mission. You know, really, and most of us at this point in life, it's like take care of us and our family. Yeah. It's not, 
you know, plate carriers and armor. And, you know, there might be a place for that in the time in the future, and maybe you should understand it or have it and figure it out. But the reality for most people, you know, is, you, you, know, you know, just learn how to run the gun. You know, pick gear that's appropriate to your world, you know. And then, you know, my community, you know, from law enforcement and a lot of the the instructors there, it's like, for me, concealed carry most of my life was a joke. Okay, okay. I, had a, I have a badge in a 50-state oh, yeah. carry ID. It's yeah. not really concealed. It's not showing. You know, it's covered, not concealed. Sure. Well, you know, I get out in the real world— and I have jobs now where I work in complete no weapons environments where part of, you, you know, you get fired if you're found with a yeah. weapon. And, you know, all of a sudden, like, you know, concealment becomes like a whole different ball game. All of a sudden, Thunderwear is yeah, a thing. It's a thing. I've, <laughs> yeah, and I have that. And, you know, and, you know, uh, is being able, can you, can you survive a pat down yeah. with a firearm? You know, that's a whole different ball game. You know, uh, Claude Warner has a great thing. Because if, you know, a lot of the guys, the firearms instructors out here, go try to work at Target for three months as an employee at Target. Mm-hmm. Armed with a firearm and see if you can pull that off without yeah. anybody ever figuring it out. You know, and you it, might be carrying a three eighty. You might you might <laughs> learn some things. You know, because you know, like I said, I, I look at guys. You know, they got a you know yeah you know, my bedside gun. I got an X three hundred U on it and all the you know gigantic junk. But I'm like you know I look at these guys. No, I carried every twenty four seven man. My you know. Red Dot and U300 and, you know, all this stuff. And out my back. Yeah, I'm like, no, you don't. (laughs) You know, because, like, most of the time I'm in basketball shorts, you know, at home. Yeah, I got do do I got a 10-ounce J-frame on me? Uh, Yeah. Do I ever want to shoot the 10-ounce J-frame? Nope. But I have a gun, you know. Um, One of the most experienced guys in the entire planet I know who has – been to every place that has a stand and probably on the wrong side of the border doing that. Mm. I mean, truly that level of overseas crazy experience. And, you know, he's a crack up. The dude carries, you know, I, I've got one that we, my wife and I use, you know, it's a Smith & Wesson 43C. It's an eight shot, 10 ounce, 22 revolver. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's things like, yeah, cause I know how to get out of trouble. You know, uh, you know, I've been through checkpoints with dudes with AK-47s manning checkpoints. Yeah, you kind of figure this stuff out, and you know, kind of urban America isn't that heady. You know, yeah. if you know, and so you know, that's one of my big things is you know, get out of trouble guns well, rather than get into trouble guns. Yes, are a big difference. That's why I'm so into it- snub revolvers because they're to me get out of trouble guns. Yeah. And they kind of make you think that maybe I shouldn't go get into trouble. Because um, I have uh, limited options here. But if you're carrying a G19 with a 20-round spare mag, that seems a little bit like get into trouble. Like, I could go it, looking oh, for I can, it. Well, no, yeah. you'd almost feel bad if you didn't. Yeah, good point. Like, I carried, I want to, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, like, you well, know, when, hey, my, kid, when my, my kid was in school, you know, if I was, anytime I went to school, mm-hmm. Uh, to pick up my kid, be there and stuff. Man, I always had a nine spare magazines, med kit, tourniquets, the whole thing. Because 
I couldn't live with myself. If oh, yeah. something happened, those kids were in there, I've got the badge, I've got the the training, I've got all the stuff to solve that problem, and if I didn't have the tools with me, that's on me. Yeah. And then there's the rest of my life when I have really no duty to do that stuff. And a very veteran New York PD cop told me something that he told all of his trainees and stuff, and his big thing is, what are you willing to die for? Yeah. And you know, these days, not a lot. So what do you, let, let's just, like, let's bring it <laughs> to, you know, sort of current situation. Yeah. Um, not knowing what's going to happen in the future, obviously. Right. <laughs> but knowing full well that um, uh, the sea is agitated. Yes. And, uh, you know, coming to a street corner near you, uh, you know, at, at at some point, like, what is the, I mean, I kind of, the thing is, like, I want to ask, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> um, but I, I realize that that would be a rhetorical question. question. <laughs> or an, we're, an, we're, we're not hugging it out okay. <laughs> with the other side. Okay, well, maybe we go, we, we go at it from, and, uh, yeah, you it, know, it, from, from that side, like, what's not going to happen? So, yeah. obviously, there's no, um, there, there's no political will to, you know, solve anything for, you know, from either perspective. Nope. Obviously. Um, and, you know, if you pay lip service to defund, demilitarize, reduce, reallocate, um, I think what happens in reaction to that, I mean, my personal feeling is that you get more of that. Like, yes. like if you say, hey, let's have less cops and then human nature does this thing, um, somebody's going to say, actually, the problem is we need more like, so, and, 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 and harder in, in a way. Like I would like personally to see all the MRAPs, like, and I brought it up on the podcast before. It's like, hey, there was a book back in the day called Dress for Success and how you dress influences how you behave. Um, if you're, if the environment matters, like if I control the environment in our space here, whether it's training, whether it's in the podcast studio, whatever, like I have some influence on the outcome of whatever is going to happen. So, um, if we agree that, you know, environment to be personal environment, which, which is wardrobe, but also the cultural environment within the law enforcement agency or whatever has, you know, if the environment has an influence, then we change those. We, we can't change the people, but we can change those things. So don't let them dress like fucking soldiers anymore. Depends. Except for, <laughs> oh no, except for yeah. not, not the guys who've only been through 18 to 26 weeks of training. They right. don't get to do that. There are people with a lot more experience, a lot more training, a lot more you know, that get that, but they aren't the ones that go to the bar to tell them that they have illegally opened against the governor's you right. know, COVID and, and regulations. Exactly. Like the SWAT team doesn't show up for that shit. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of this, um, anybody who knows me knows I am in insanely critical of police political management, yes. which is half the problem. Um, you know, I get to throw the uh, the poop at the cops because I was one. All my best friends are those. And, you know, so from an inside's perspective, you know, I can, I can kind of go there and have seen it from the inside out. So here's a lot of the problem. So we have... You have a double-edged sword there. So for, I can't tell you how many years. For example, at one point, I, I, I was in a horrific 
car accident at work. You know, I had gotten some uh, lady didn't believe those police sirens and lights were necessary in the middle of her texting, ran out, you know, and parked her car on my, my door at 45 miles per hour. And, you know, so I had a sur- pretty serene. I should have probably retired on level of injury, but I didn't because I wasn't far enough in my career and I fought coming back. But I had a prescription, literally from a doctor, to go to nylon, to a nylon gun belt to save the weight of that, you know, basket weave, yeah. double handcuff, you know, this massive thing. And, you know, my lieutenant at the time said, you're not going to go out on, you're not going, you're going to sit in the station, you're not going out wearing a nylon gun belt. You will wear a basket weave leather, 30 pounds of crap on your hips. Yeah. I don't care. So, you know, you had sort of this married to certain traditions, um, wool uniforms, okay. horrendously expensive. Uh, they were good. Like we always had to wear wool, even in Southern California, because a billion years prior to me being there, uh, one of our guys was in a fire in a police car, burned. Yeah. polyester and you know caused and, issues and, so, and it got melted so, to it, him right yeah. so from then on everything had to be wool and leather yeah and you see sort of the basis but it, it becomes sort of that's how we've always done it you know don't we have enough sophisticated level of how much has clothing changed technical climbing all of it all of I mean, it right like, okay yeah, 100% like, yeah, yeah you couldn't probably do a lot of what you do if you were using 1920s level clothing technology or even the 70s right you know like, <laughs> so so the cops you want like i said these politicians get up there and they want 1920s looking police people okay for a hundred year later problems yeah. Okay, we have incredible fire retardants, lightweight, wonderful clothing options that mm-hmm. we could do some very efficient police uniforms. They just wouldn't look like what you probably want. We end That's up. That's an interesting because because it, it is a stereotype. Of, yes, you know, you know they constable want, on the beat kind right, of right. They know, want like, you know they want you know. Highway Patrol from the 1950s or yeah. Adam 12. You know, so that's... Smokey the Bear hat. Now, I got to you... tell you, growing up in L.A. Mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s, L.A. cops were terrifying because they did all look like Adam... They were... Yeah. Well, you weren't allowed to be fat back then. They were all six foot plus... Yeah. Well, I remember like the height regulation. Yeah, and, with a hat yeah. and the blue, you know, and the whole thing. I mean, they were sort of intimidating because they were so uniform. But then working in that stuff was horribly inefficient. Because, like, you're not going to, you know, I always was in trouble because my uniforms were always a size too big. Because, like, if there was an alarm, call it a business, if I can climb up on the roof and go check a roof to see if somebody went in through a roof job, I would. But that also requires me, like, to move. To move and to try to get up on a ladder and to climb or to climb under things and get dirty and tear stuff up. Well, those uniforms are horrendously expensive. And our agency covered the cost of that. A lot of places, the officer themselves are required to do it. So you know how hard they're going to climb that cha- that barbed wire fence if you're going to tear a $120 pair of pants yeah. that you have to replace? That- you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to go check that business owner's business because there might be an obstacle in the way. Well, the 
dirtbag who's in there burglarizing it isn't going to change. It, it wasn't bothered by it. You know, so it, coming up with an efficient police uniform using modern technology would yeah. be fabulous. Coming but, up but with well-thought-out gear. But yeah. the problem is when you want it for free, you know where you have to go to get it for free? Surplus military stuff. Yeah. Okay, we could all go get, you know, Bearcats and stuff that are purpose-built police vehicles. Or you can go get an MRAP for nothing. That for most agencies, having that MRAP that can do floods, rescue downed officers, do a lot of these things that you want those for are great. The problem is there will be a police lieutenant somewhere who needs to justify having that thing. They're not okay with just doing like Citizens Crime Night Out and demos and having it in the back lot available and whatever. They need to go use this thing, which means, guys, we got a warrant at the, uh, you know, the strip bars opening when they're not supposed to because of COVID. You know, yeah. we're going to go load up the MRAP. Well, yeah, I mean, it was in Texas where that fucking thing happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, and you just, yeah, you just sit there and go. And, and, you know, to me, that's just dumb. You know, one of the most innovative, like, police ideas ever heard, you know, this guy, you know, talking, a sheriff in a rural area, and he goes, you know, the, uh, the guys, they don't want to have a SWAT team. You know, we don't need a SWAT team. He goes, I just sent all my people to SWAT school. Well, there's a genius thought. So basically what he did is instead of having a tactical team, you know, with helmets and gear and armored vehicles and all this for a place that doesn't really need it or may use it once in 30 years, we thought it was a much genius idea. You know, I could get, you know, my, my, my eight or 10 people in decent shape and send them to a SWAT school. Now my whole department knows how to do that. Genius. Yeah. Yeah. What can we have more of those leaders rather than managers and supervisors? I mean, and and look at that, the bar COVID thing that was in that, in that uh, Texas County, like, Hey, chief law enforcement officer, you know, drives up, parks uh, some distance away, walks onto the property by himself and just says, hey, you guys, here's the thing. Well, and you know, here's by the same token. Okay, take the the MRAP out of the equation. Yeah. I watched in Los Angeles County two lifeguard boats, Mm -hmm. boats, okay, and like four officers, you know, so there's four police cars, two boats, all of this stuff for a dude paddleboarding in the Pacific Ocean. Okay, we're releasing thousands of felons onto the street. We're doing these insane riots and not doing nobody's getting prosecuted for burning stuff down, destroying people's lives, insurance doesn't cover looting. All of these things, but we're going to de- we're going to devote two boats those are specialized units and equipment designed yeah. for. We're going to devote two boats and four officers who could be doing something much more important to a dude on a paddleboard. Paddle <laughs> okay, so it doesn't matter if it's misuse of military equipment, if it's misuse of rescue equipment, if it's just plain misuse of resources. These are all stupid political 
piss poor management decisions because we don't have enough leaders in law enforcement. And to me, the number one job of a leader is to train your people. You know, my, my dad is a business, a highly recognized business genius. Um, my dad was the United Jewish Appeal Businessman of the Year. That's a tough one to pull. Okay. Um, from kind of a marketing stuff. His biggest thing was training, is training your employees and training people on how to do stuff. If you, that's how you gain efficiency, yeah. is training them to how best serve your customers. And he goes, right now, you know, everybody's so good at talking inside of a, cust- a business. Nobody can t- is talking to customers, but boy, everybody's having meetings and doing whatever. Efficient at talking to themselves, yeah. and nobody's training anybody, you know. And, and that's the problem. And it's, it's pervasive in law enforcement as well, is we're doing stuff that has nothing to do with the primary goal. And, you know, one of the things years ago I said is, you know what we need to do? We need to assign a metric to measure law enforcement performance. Okay. And we can't use money because it's not a money-making operation. So trying to use money as the matrix like we do in business on yeah. profit and yeah, loss yeah. and stuff, you can't use that. So I said, you know, what? what is the general taxpaying real citizenry public, what would the matrix for them look like for evaluating their local police department? To me, it's 911 response times. Because generally what most people want is when they dial 911 at the worst day of their life, they would really like somebody to show up in a hurry. In a timely manner. In a timely manner. And not only show up in a timely manner, you send competent people in a timely manner to to deal with your problems. So if we used a matrix of like 911 call response as what we're really evaluating law enforcement on, how drastically would that change law enforcement? And would it be for the better or for the worse if the biggest goal you set was how fast and what competent level of people can we send uh, yeah. to people's emergencies, how would that work? And you would, I think it would work. I think you'd get the police department you really want. And I tell people now, everybody wants to complain about the cops. It's real simple. Okay? Law enforcement is a mirror of your community. And you know what? If you don't like what you see in the mirror, it's not the mirror. It's you. It's what that reflection is. If you don't like your police department, you're the problem not the mirror because you voted for, or if it's not you, most of your friends, neighbors and stuff voted for people who made that reflection. So, and this was part of my issue early on a, you know, with even during the COVID situation, but then later after the (laughs) protests began, um, is like, look, you're, 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 uh, aiming at the target that you have the most interaction with, which is the constable on patrol, mm-hmm. let's say. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I say, look, these are the, the, you are 
you know the real the the, the targets a you know, in one sense they haven't shown themselves but for the most part you, you are looking in the wrong places because who gives the permission who gives the direction who misallocates and then misuses the resource you know you're you're pissed at the resource you're you know and at, at the personnel who are who are actually you know doing the executing but they are being told and directed you know on a on a a, a cultural level which you know um by people who are not them what I, what i love is like and, you know most of these incidents that we see that irk the public first of all violence is ugly period it doesn't look like television it's not the way you want to see it it was sort of the beauty of the show cops and sort of the modern live pd stuff is the public got to see what cops deal with every day for real. And it's a level of Disneyland fantasy stupidity that most people can't fathom yeah. that that dumb dumbery is going on in America, but it is every day. So that's good. But the reality is most people have this, uh, you know, chips uh tv version of police use of force and stuff now they'll watch you know they'll turn john wick into blockbuster stuff but then when they see what the real thing looks like they don't like it and a vast majority of these incidents happen when there is a level of resistance and a level of lawlessness and criminal behavior and what they really don't like is the response to that. Okay, so we can trace that right back to one thing. And every time one of these comes up, I'll, I'll be, I sound like a parrot. Uh, negligent hiring, negligent training, negligent retention. One or all, one, two, or all three of those things will be a factor. So you either hired the wrong person, you pro didn't properly train the person, or you you kept somebody you shouldn't have. And usually there's patterns for all three of those things or in combination that tell you there was a problem there well ahead of time. You know, is a lot of these people, their first rodeo at screwing up was not the one you saw on television. Some of these are horrific uh, issues of the public being fed garbage. And I'll use one incident that I think outlies it, and it's because I have a, a very, uh, without going into a whole bunch of details, I'm very familiar with it. So like the Alton Sterling shooting in Baton Rouge, where it was the guy who was selling illegal CDs outside of a store, two officers show up, they get into a scuffle, and the guy's pulling a gun out of his pocket, gets shot and killed. Okay, the initiation of that call was he was pointing his illegal, the felon with the illegal gun was pointing his gun, you know, uh, accosted a homeless guy who was begging money. Okay, this dude, when you talk about violence in a minority community, this is him. This is your, the, the, the CDs are a cover for selling dope. You know, this is your local career criminal carrying an illegal gun, threatening people with it, you call the police, the police come, they try to get him into custody, and he pulls a gun, his felon with the illegal gun on the officers, who used lethal force to solve the problem, and you're going to riot and burn down a city for that dude? 
Really? On the other end, recent incident, say in Minneapolis, when you have a situation where the most senior officer there, and I don't want to get into a whole lot of details because I don't have them yet either. I, I really want to see the whole thing. But from from a, a, a spectator standpoint who has a lot of experience dealing with people on drugs, mm-hmm. okay, arresting people overdosing on narcotics is a daily police event. How much time should we spend training for that? on how to properly take into safely into custody somebody who's overdosing or has ingested a massive amount of illegal drugs. And in this case, had COVID, the officer's not wearing protective equipment. There's a whole lot going on there. And when one officer tells the other one, like, shouldn't we lay this guy over on his side to do this thing? And the other guy's, no, no, this is the way we're supposed to do it. Okay, what I want to know... Yeah, you turn him on its, you know, in what a rescue wanna, position what so I, when he yeah. starts vomiting. The, yeah, yeah or you, you sit him up on the car, you know, whatever. Like a lot yeah. of us have done like thousands of these arrests with these guys who are ODing on drugs. It's a daily police event. What I want to know, though, when was that officer last trained to deal with people overdosing or using high levels of street-level narcotics and how to properly deal with that. Now that changes a lot. You know, back in the old days, we used to hogtie those people because they were so violent, particularly like PCP. Yeah. You know, rolling around with dudes on PCP was a, was a life altering event. I mean, I just can't tell you until you've done it. Uh, you know, take your top level BJJ guy and a white belt, put them in the ring together. And that's what you have with these people because nothing you can do hurts them. They feel nothing. So nothing really works. The only thing that ever works is carotid control holds. Then if you do get them asleep and can get them handcuffed, when they come to, it's a whole new ball game again. And it doesn't matter that they're handcuffed. So then they're kicking your windows out and doors out of police cars and hurting everybody. So, you know, you end up hogtying these guys, tossing them like a suitcase in the back of the police car. That's what we used to do. And then they started dying from positional asphyxiation. Yeah. Okay, so then you adopt the training that then what we would do is we'd tie their ankles, throw the hobble outside the door, close the door. Now they can sit up, but they can't kick the windows out. They can't hurt themselves. You know, then they're starting to maybe bang their head into the cage and stuff. So you've got to kind of figure out ways to get into those cars and get them secured with seat. I mean, we learned and dealt with it, but you know where that came from? But as we learned, we trained. Hey, guys, we're not hog-tying them anymore. We're going to do this technique now is safer. We had to learn the hard way, but you adapt and train. Constantly changes. As medicine, cases, case histories, all these things happen, you adopt the training. Well, you know who should be in jail right now? The mayor of Minneapolis, whose goal was climate change, and the police chief, who was has spent his entire career as an advocate for social justice. Well, you know, the best thing you could have done instead of worrying about that is maybe training your people how to arrest people under the influence of drugs, not banning warrior training. You know, you know how you said, like, God, if every cop was a purple belt and BJJ? Yeah. Okay, you're around some BJJ people, right? You know, how many of those would have had a problem controlling 
these things you see on TV. It's kindergarten, BJJ. Yeah. <laughs> How many police departments are investing it? Do you know I was banned from participation by my agency? So I was in a BJJ program with uh, Pedro Carvalho, okay. who was the advisor to LAPD. I picked him specifically. Spent a year getting tortured on my own dime, on my own time, because I was a use of force instructor. Agency comes out, one of our guys gets hurt on, you know, our SWAT guys used to play basketball together. To yep. Team bonding, yep. fitness, conditioning to meet yeah. thing. One of them broke their ankle, you know, freak accident. The department didn't want to cover it. It got like, you know, lawsuit level stuff and they lost. And so the response was nobody can do any fitness stuff off duty without department clearance and a reason to do it. Like we'd rather you die of a heart attack or whatever than actually pay a work comp claim if you got hurt for so maintaining these, physical. Res, these kind of responses. These are coming from are, your elected officials. Yeah. Okay. So I submit all the paperwork and say, look, I'm a use of force instructor. I'm in a, I am not at the BJJ gym where beating the tar out of cops is a sport, you know, where you're fighting 23 year old dudes who, yeah. who get a free reign to, to, yeah. to hurt a cop. I'm in a program with LAPD's BJJ dude, yeah. you know, and it's a Brazilian program. So it's very family, not hurting. I, I mean, I couldn't straighten my arms out for a year, but there, <laughs> nobody's trying to really hurt you. You're in a, a proper program. Look, it, it's very helpful for me for training for that, keeping my physical fitness up. Yeah. You know, I started, you know, rolling for five minutes was like the death of me. And then I was to the point where I could roll six fresh opponents back to back. So I could roll 30 minutes on six fresh dudes. It's a good fitness level for a police officer. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> in a year. You like know, along I mean, with your purple belt, that's yeah, what you should be able well, to do. Well, I was do. a white belt okay. from day one till day because day, I didn't no, care. But, I'm just but you know saying, what I'm saying? Like, well, no, if, after if, day one, I never rolled less than a purple belt. And usually I was rolling the instructors because of my size and because I'm built funny. Okay. <laughs> when yeah. you have a, a upper body like mine, you know, they're like, oh, this guy's a freak, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. It was really good for me as a police officer. The department said, nope, you can't do that anymore. You have to get out of the program because if you got hurt, we're not covering you. So if you told that to the American public, does that make sense to anybody? That we would rather you just die untrained of a heart attack or do whatever because some city government dude doesn't think that's a good idea. The worst, you know, best class, uh, I took a really interesting class years ago, and one of the guys they brought in was a dude who specializes, he's an attorney who sues police departments on use of force violations. Okay. He was an instructor for all of these firearms instructors. Obviously, it's in a different county than he works. Yeah. And he was a shooter, so his deal was with the guy at the range was they'd let him come up there and shoot and train, the payback was he was going to have to train police firearms instructors on how not to get sued. Pretty good deal. Yeah. That seems and good. one of the things I learned from this guy is he goes, okay, let me tell you about city attorneys. He goes, they're city attorneys. He goes, your A-game are not city attorneys. Your A-game lawyers are yeah. not working for a municipality as an attorney, okay, first of all. Second of all, they're not use of force attorneys to begin with. They're better at their administrative guys. He goes, and it's called job security. They are writing policies to get you guys sued. 
He goes, look, my clients all deserved what they got. He goes, I haven't had a client yet who really didn't deserve what he got. But he goes, I sue the dog snot out of you guys because you violate your own policies. He goes, you know, they'll put in stuff like you can't hit somebody in the head with a flashlight. Well, your guys work half their life with a flashlight in their hand at night. And you get in a fight, you know what's going to happen? Somebody's going to get hit with a flashlight. Yeah. Well, see, my agency, we never had problems with that because it was in our policy. And, that and the f- guess what? It's so much better now yeah. that we have, have surefire lights as opposed to the four D-cell mag I, I still light. carry the <laughs> same r- r- mag light I carried from day one of my... Mag light was in the city I worked in, so, okay. you yeah. know, we oh, were Ontario. big on... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I carried, I've carried the same rechargeable mag light my entire adult... Yeah. It's the same one. You know, it's like the dentist, you know, it's, um, but I, I've hit more people with that light than I know what to do with because I've lived with it. It's in my hand yeah. constantly, but it, we trained with it as an impact weapon. So it was in policy that in an extreme situation, if other options weren't available, you could use it as an impact weapon. And you know what happened? We didn't get sued for that because you were trained to do it and it was in policy. And, you know, as an example, when I was writing the rifle policy for my agency, you know, I put this policy together that, you know, on how, you know, it's the same lethal, you know, lethal force is lethal force is lethal force. It doesn't matter. I laid out these parameters to use the thing. You don't want to take it to a domestic violence call. If you have a call that the, you know, possibly armed suspect, you know, high level violent crime, whatever, it's an appropriate use of them. So the city attorney comes back with this thing, this policy, that you can only use a rifle if you can articulate that the criminal is wearing body armor or is armed with a assault weapon. So I go, okay, let me get this straight. So that police right, carbine allows me to put cops, instead of in people's front yards like we did with pistols and shotguns, and put them across the street with real cover. They can be behind a tree, behind a car, whatever. Maintain proper perimeters on locations. Get people out of houses without mm-hmm. exposing people to danger, whatever. I go. So here's the thing. So say a guy comes running out of a house with a 25 auto shooting at one of my guys, and he, he, he puts him down with an AR-15. Good shoot? Does that qualify as a good use of lethal force is like somebody was shooting at me? So I used lethal force to end the problem. I go, you just took a perfectly legal, solid, good use of force and made it an out-of-policy shooting. I said, well, let's let's articulate that. Guy comes out of his house with a a butcher knife or a cleaver or an axe or Mm -hmm. something charging you, ready to cave your skull in, and you happen to be holding an AR-15, and you shoot him. Again, perfectly legal, justified, proper use of force, now completely out-of-policy. Or say they, you know, they had a gun, but you couldn't articulate they had body armor. I mean, I go, you're setting these guys up to get sued. But you know whose job that protects? Yours. The attorneys. The attorneys, yeah. And it just lays these poor officers out with garbage policy. And, y- and, <laughs> and then, and, and puts, well, puts them in a, in a more dangerous situation. Like, okay, I've got this threat of, you know, legal action. On, on the one hand, but then, um, you know, th- th- then I have the actual physical threat right in front of me, and maybe I'm going to respond in a uh, more violent way right. than I would have if I could have just had a little bit of standoff and with with a more um, 
something more of a deterrent. You well, know, you know, visible it, to the and some of this goes back to kind of what you were talking about, like how the public perceives sort of the militaristic thing. So one of the things we started issuing our people ballistic helmets that were okay. looked like a military type yeah. helmet. Um, we had an armored ve- we had an armored vehicle. Okay, that it was an old British Humber pig. Um, if you ever saw the movie Red State, that is our old armored okay. vehicle um, that we converted into a police type yeah. rescue thing. We had the ram on it and the floorboards and all that and SWAT usually used it but we trained everybody in patrol to use to drive the thing or you know we had people designated who could deploy the thing in patrol and so we had you know helmets we have these we have rifles and stuff we put our mm-hmm. SWAT team almost out of business because on a lot of those cases for example it's a domestic violence a heated domestic call and one party's in there and you know the other party's calling and say hey they have a rifle you know, they have all this stuff. And that used to be would turn into a barricaded gunman. You have a bunch of poor patrol cops standing out on the lawn wearing nothing with a pistol. You got a crook inside who's in an emotional, critical state with a rifle feeling very desperate. And a lot of those ended wrong and required full SWAT callouts of we're going to bring all the guys, the tear gas, the negotiators and stuff. (laughs) What we started doing is our patrol guys would show up, throw a helmet on, grab an AR-15, set up a perimeter outside the house at Mm -hmm. good distances, everybody's got cover, and then bring an armored vehicle parked in front of the house in a matter of minutes. Want to know how many of those guys just gave up? All of them? Oh, 100%. (laughs) You just look, well, they yeah. look outside yeah. and instead of seeing a bunch of like screaming dudes with pistols and whatever, there's dudes out there hiding behind cars across the street with rifles and there's a tank basically that they perceive Yeah, and they give up right then and there. Now the whole neighborhood didn't get sh- shut down. We didn't shoot a ton of tear gas into the house. Nobody's yelling and screaming. The cops aren't yelling and screaming because nobody's really panicked because we've trained for all of this. And that level of competence and proper deployment. Now, every domestic violence call didn't get that. It was the ones where they call in and go, you know, he's screaming, he wants to kill himself, he's got a rifle. Well, those would get escalated to proper use of the equipment. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of people who want to take that away because, well, we don't think they need an armored vehicle. Nobody thinks you need an armored vehicle until you're laying in the middle of the street bleeding. And I mean, you're a dog lover, right? Because I love dogs more than humans. Mm -hmm. I think you're probably in the same boat. We had one of these cases. One of our canines rolled up on one of these. Guys had an armored house. I mean, he had gun ports cut into armor and stuff. He lit our canine car up. And, you know, the dog handler and the dog are sitting out in the middle of the street getting hammered. You know, we're pouring fire into the house. You know, all of a sudden, like, having an armored vehicle is sort of a really good thing. So I, 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 I realize the, the fallacy of, like, the hypocrisy of my own argument there of saying, look, let's demilitarize. Let's take away that vehicle. But what it, and so I am doing exactly what the policymakers do is I'm focusing on the inanimate object right. and making it the problem when the problem actually like how easy is it for us to fall into our own fucking traps? This is maybe a good point on 
you know, for uh, reason for having a podcast, because, right? <laughs> you know, two and a half hours in, I just realized, like, wow, I'm the uh, I, I've 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 chosen the wrong target, <laughs> right? So it's not the armored vehicle itself; it's the use of, of the policy of when it is appropriate, and then the competency with which it is used. It's the you know select fire assault rifle let's say it's not the object itself it's the policy which directs okay when is it you know when can this be deployed when should it be deployed and how competent must you be in order to do so and so i'm so the problems are not it's not equipment again it's human nature and then it's the you know the the lack of leadership and the lack of training yeah our armored vehicle had gotten shot a lot yeah that's people not getting shot yes you know um and that was because it was socal now you look down in like areas of texas and other places those mraps are being used far more often to rescue flood victims than anything else now if you wanted to go to a budget strap department say i need to buy some sort of non-military amphibious vehicle (laughs) in case of mass flooding do you really want to spend a ton of money on that? Or the taxpayers already paid for that MRAP that's sitting in a yard somewhere. Wouldn't that be a better use to put that thing in a place where now you can use it? Now, now so, so again, get, we... Wait, 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 excuse <laughs> me. Stop with your logic. And that's the I mean, problem. I'm so, I'm so, yeah. so the problem I'm, comes in is because some police administrator makes a mistake in how they use things. Yeah. Is it the thing? No, and again, no, it, 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 and it's it the same is. thing. It's, it's like, like they they don't like how police are using force. Well, who protested it? We're, I haven't seen one sign at a protest that says, fund a better police use of force training. Yeah. Raise the shooting standards. You know, better hiring standards for police. We need to have higher, better wages so we can get better police candidates. Have you seen that sign? Because that's the one that will fix the problem. And here's what I predict you're going to see coming because this is my world. In the private sector, most of my life outside of police work has been spent working for protecting the liberal elite level of society. Sure. Because yeah. they can afford me. Yeah. You know, I have a resume of training classes that looks like a phone book. Okay, there's easily six figures. There's well over $100,000 in training there. And the, believe me, the police department didn't pay for that. Yeah. So to certain elements of society, I'm a wonderful thing to have. I know how to use force. I'm experienced in it. I know most of the time how not to use it. The businesses I was sitting in front of during riots with the team I was on didn't get looted because they put very high-level private security contractors there. And you know what all of these guys' backgrounds are? High-level law enforcement, high-level military special operations backgrounds. They, we, you know. Yeah. Rich people will afford that. Rich liberals will afford that. The problem is, is everybody else is going to get what your $10 an hour security guards are going to be. In a defunded police world, you will be getting $10 an hour security guards as cops. 
and and five dollar an hour private contractors. And, well, uh, no, no, <laughs> untrained. Yeah, or in the people who are demanding that will be getting five hundred dollar a day private security contractors. Yeah, and if that's the world people want to live in, that's what's coming. Rather than, well, why don't we just have the really good trained guys working for the citizenry and the taxpayers? As, a pro, as opposed to right. liberal and, elite. Right. And maybe the liberal elite can have the not as well-trained guys manning the gatehouse at their community. But if you let society devolve to the point they're going to have the guys with the AR-15s at the gatehouse of their, their community. Yeah. And you're going to get... Mall cop. Mall cops who are not going to do anything to solve your problem. All they're going to do is they're, they're, we're getting to a state and our big cities are seeing this now. If you're a local metropolitan police officer and you're looking at arresting some local drug dealer who happens to not look like you, you know, it's a, 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 a profession I love. And I'm deeply vested in, and I'm just going to tell you, you're an idiot doing your job. There's no reason to go. You know, I, I tell people I spent most of my career working weekend nights in communities of color, full of people. There's an old, old cops uh, thing from Dade County, Florida, and I so related to the one. He's the white guy, you know, and he's like, "Hey, you see this face?" This is the only white. This is the only white face in this neighborhood. All you other ones are here buying dope, you know. And some, you know, member of the community come by and he's, oh, I'm not here to talk to you. I'm just trying to get these white people coming down here to buy dope. You know, that poor guy is suffering living there because people are in there buying dope. Yeah. You know, and I always worked those communities with the idea of there is some, there is a bunch of kids in there who if I give them the opportunity to survive can go out and do amazing things in this world full of opportunity. If I can keep them out of dope, if I can keep these bangers from killing them when they're eight years old, if I can just make a little safe space in their world by taking the the cancer and the crap out of here, um, we can do amazing. Some of those kids will kind of come out of here and survive. And, you know, they're going to be... Yo, that neuro, that that pediatric neurosurgeon. They're gonna sure. be him, you know, and or they're gonna come out, maybe end up in you know a, a political position, and remember or the you, you example know that was set by the well-trained, or better yet, capable, they, or come out and be cops. Yeah, you know, nothing would be better than some of these communities where policing becomes part of the culture. You look at the Irish culture in New York, I mean, you want to talk about somebody starting from zero of lower than pond scum. It was the Irish in New York who dominate as police officers in that, and it's a ethnic, cultural tradition. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody you didn't look at as like you were a sellout, if you had more people who became solid, professional, well-educated, well-trained police officers. Isn't that what we want? And instead of just, and just throw out the whole, I need to hire this number of this color, this gender, because that's 90% of the problem. 
is what if we set a standard and we made that an achievable goal with hard work, motivation, and the reward at the end? A performance standard. Yeah, well, and that the reward at the end is a, is a solid, well-paid professional. Yeah. Like a doctor, <laughs> you know. You, you know, if you think about it, you know, we got guys that are gun badge power to take life. Why are we not doctor-level, true profession-level invested in those people? as opposed to what we're doing now, which is, and you have the same thing with teachers. Yeah. You know, there's another one that, boy, could we, could we use some cleansing? And and there's another, you know, when we talk about response to things being somewhat short-sighted and not looking for the, and I guess I might've been talking about this with uh, Sam last night about like the long-term unintended consequences of certain things. And I'm just like shorting education (laughs) uh, doesn't (laughs) come good 15 years from now. No, Ten years uh, from now. it is, you know, so there's all of these big issues that I think we're, we're, we're trying to have some fantasy land uh, solutions for rather than really yeah. getting in. And, you know, when I, I'll never, you know, when I took my oral exam to be a police officer, so you always get the question, why do you want to be a cop? You oh, know, yeah. why, why, and the answer is always the same is. I want to do, uh, I want to help people. And my answer was, I want to take predatory animals and put them in cages. Oh. Yeah. And that's what I spent most of my career doing, is removing the hyenas from the watering hole so that the baby gazelles <laughs> could get water yeah. safely. You know, and the thing is, is if we're deterring people now from removing the hyenas you're going to have a whole lot of hyenas and the gazelles are not going to like living in those conditions yeah so so that's what's coming that's what's coming (laughs) (laughs) fuck um well until the gazelles get sick of it and going uh you know we need to hire some lions yeah (laughs) yeah okay forget you know sheepdogs and and all this we need to hire lions back and and lions should have amraps (laughs) right (laughs) yeah um i i i I can't walk back my position on the like demilitarization thing because i do think there's a there's a, I agree a a cultural (laughs) um phenomena that there that can that Society would benefit from changing um, because I think that's, you know, that, 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 uh, yeah. Anyway, I I think if you uh, just look at it as safety equipment and how we use it. Yes. Is a better way to look at it than militarized or not. Yeah. Uh, Police uniforms throughout history and equipment have all been military based from the beginning of it to Mm -hmm. the end. So I mean, but a lot of that I think is like you said, it's availability the, bias. Yeah, and they used to look like yeah, because they used to be like cavalry uniforms, you know, because yeah. that was like so that's normal. But it's again, it comes to like anything is we need to change to what's the safest for the personnel. You know, just like medical personnel right now mm-hmm. with COVID. I mean, that's yeah. changing how our medical people work in the COVID environment. We're going to need to adapt law enforcement to a safe environment of equipment. Yes. And that's what it is what it is. And if that's coming out of the military because they got the big 
big well, budgets to make all that cool stuff. Well, let's shift <laughs> the budget, you know, re repurpose that budget, reallocate that budget away from, <laughs> you know, foreign entanglements, let's say, which <laughs> we are you, in agreement. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, 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 and point it in and, you know, invest yeah. inwards, um, which, uh, which is not the, I mean, defund doesn't mean what the word means when you look it up. You know? Right. <laughs> it, it, so, but because I think, I think we all agree that something um, that, that we need to, you know, we are fully capable as a species, at, you know, of doing better in these particular si oh, situations. Oh, we adapt. That's what our thing is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's our gift. Yeah. It's and just adapting to the wrong thing is also a curse. Un <laughs> and, and, and adapting to that wrong thing for long enough that it becomes institutionalized. Yep. Or, and, you know, not to, and yeah, there are levels of behavior that um, I just don't understand. Like the, we're not going to invest in proper training, you know, or, or adequate training or overly adequate training. Um, that just make it makes no sense, you know. Hey, we're not going to pay the teachers, so we're going to get you know this quality for this level of reward, and then t you know, uh, our children will be the result of that. You right. Know, you know, our children as adults will be the result of that decision that got made in a, in a short sighted way. Yeah, I, I'm uh, you know a little bit conflicted about you know. The whole, it, the whole world's conflicting right now. <laughs> well, yeah, con yeah, conflicting. Yeah, it's true. I'm just like, it, it, for me, I'm just kind of on the fence. Do I want the asteroid to hit on the day before election day or not? Yeah. You know, I just, I can't decide. I'm going to be a coin toss. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> that's, uh, that's about two and a half hours. Yeah. Well, amazing how that happens. Yeah. <laughs> two gabbers and you're going to have no that. Kid, yeah, no <laughs> yeah, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is... We might have to do this again. Yeah, next time I'm back in town, well, definitely. This is nice. Yeah, <laughs> like I said, I, I'm used to doing these on my phone. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, this is this is this, this is, is going to be good. Yeah. I think. I mean, and and um, and and you'll especially have to come back because we didn't really we kind of like talked about the thug <laughs> and then didn't. Yeah, which well, it doesn't actually it doesn't actually matter. Just to be able to sit across and share ideas and you know talk about some mutual friends, <laughs> old friends. You know, and we love the here, same kind of 1911s, and that's really all that, you know, it's America. Exactly. <laughs> <Right. it is. laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And unfortunately, um, my almost matched pair yeah. um, of thugs, I, I, I don't even have one of them anymore. No, it's not good. See, I got all of mine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and maybe, maybe I'll – I've kind of been joking with Steve about like, hey – I guess as part of my, you know, schooling over here, I just need to go get, you know, a, a Springfield mil spec, you know, <laughs> base gun and make my own. Yeah, or I do or, I do it cold. That's what I tell everybody when you're gonna put okay. that much money into it. I really want that rampant Colt on the side. Okay, <laughs> it's just me. It's nothing against Springfield. It's just when I start spending that, that kind of money. Yeah. I really want it to be a cult. <laughs> but, if, if, but thinking, of, you know, thinking in that regard also, I kind of like, you know, Steve and I have been talking about, you know, what's the, what's the current, the, 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 the 2020 thug, mm -hmm. you know, what does that look like? And we've, be, you know, kicked some ideas around, but it yeah. sounds like maybe you need to be in on that conversation <laughs> yeah, as well. So, cause then there'll, <laughs> so there's the thug and then the, the, the fag. Yeah. 
the, well, you and I are getting the, fags made. I, I, for sure. Right. I mean, you I, know, like, the former action guy gun, you yes. know, so there's that. And you have to just go with, I, at least I used to be an action guy. I, I At could, one point in life, I was an action guy. I, I was, <laughs> yeah. you know, because I have action figures. Yeah. Know, so my, he's, yeah, he's already got my frame and slide for that. So nice. I'm ready. Yeah. It's a, it's so a steel the, officer's frame with a steel commander slide. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it'll okay. be short. Yeah. It's because it's not getting carried in a uniform or any of that. It's going to be a conceit and yeah yeah it's <laughs> perfect <laughs> that sounds pretty darn good and then we'll have to have a tupperware thing for the 2020 thug right you and know some kind of what's horrible now is with my wife being over there and steve giving her the whole rundown you know that so i'm gonna have to build the wife thug so she's i i, I see a i see a nine millimeter you know getting yep. built you know so yeah it, it'll be fun you're getting 38 <laughs> super man well, that was the goal is I've got a nine millimeter slide over there waiting for me to find a 38 super donor. So it'd be a dual okay. caliber. You just change slides and that, nice. wouldn't that be sexy? Yes. <laughs> that would be good. Yes. So. All right. Yeah. Um, thank you for making the time. This was. This was awesome. Yeah. Fucking fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad <laughs> I came to town today early for, for the conference. So. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me it's too. perfect. <laughs> and um, I doubt I'm ever going to get to Dallas. But <laughs> if we don't, if the next time we see each other isn't here, I do, uh, you know, I may end up further east for something. Yeah, we meet, may or we meet up a, and podcast or yeah, something. Or something. Yeah, something. <laughs> whiskey, cigars, and, you know, the whole world's delicious. The whiskey makes the world delicious. The cigars, I can't mm. quite get there. Yeah, it's okay. But, uh, uh, you don't have to help. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. There we go. There we have it. Yeah. And I'm actually, it'll be whiskey with my wife and I'll have rum and cigars because I go kind of on the pirate thing. On okay. And yeah, she's the whiskey girl, but, but I, I, y'all partake a little bit. I'm really a rum guy. So. I'll, I'll bring an eye patch for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. Well, yeah. And a parrot and I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buccaneer American. That's my cultural identity. You know, I, that's... Seems if I got to hyphenate it, that's how it's going to be. Okay. Yeah, it's Buccaneer American. That, <laughs> so, that, yeah. It's tough to put on, you know. Well, just we, we, can, we need new shirts. Yeah. Yeah, Buccaneer like American. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there has to be a, you know, a familiar of some kind. You yeah. can have a parrot and yeah. maybe I'll have a raccoon or something. Something like that. Show. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah Davy Crockett. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, for your training and that kind of thing, you, you mentioned the, a Facebook page earlier. And so hardware tactical shooting is the business. Okay. Um, we're not doing as much as we'd like to because of a combination of COVID, range stuff, and my partner and I have real jobs. Um, but with that, hopefully next year we'll get back to it if things get back to some level of normalcy. Okay. Um, and then DB Shooting Adventures on Facebook is... My personal page, it covers a lot of, whether it's historical gun stuff, documentation, mm -hmm. uh, normal earth people carry stuff, kind of what my wife and I are doing. Uh, my wife's And Facebook allows you to have, like, firearms posts? Well, what's nice is all of mine are, like, 100-year-old revolvers and cool ah, stories, okay. so it doesn't get... Or I'm talking about, like, normal earth people carry stuff, so... Okay. And it's zero, and I do mean it's fairly zero politics. The only thing I lost my mind about is when they pulled the... Texas Ranger statue out of Love Field in Dallas, and uh, I did a whole thing on a Ranger retirement pistol that I restored that was destroyed, 1911, um, that kind of combined with that story. So you know with me and my wow. story yeah. stuff, so it, it's a lot of the story stuff with guns telling sort of a story about life. 
So there's a lot of that in there. I look forward to the book. Yeah, the book will be good. Yeah. I finally got the book figured out, so I'm going to sit down and do the book. So the book will be amazing. If I can offer any <laughs> Yeah, you're, don't worry. Any, I, yeah, <laughs> oh, okay. Don't worry, I'll call you. Okay. <laughs> Just consider me in the, uh, that. In the uh, loop. <laughs> I, yeah, I, you're considering me an asset that's yeah. available, although I don't have a ton of experience. Um, what I lack in experience, I made up for in money spent on yeah, said the, yeah. publishing topics. So. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> bad decisions are experience, good decisions are wisdom. So I will work on your experience and wisdom. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it.